Parasite worked on adults initially, but there was always some resistance. At a certain age, your brains become more rigid, difficult to change. Fortunately, that's not the case with children. Your children are so fucking good at taking orders. With them, it was seamless. The parasite growing in perfect symbiosis with their minds. It took a generation for those children to mature, for me to gain complete control over your world. back online it's time for another episode of the valley beyond a westworld podcast this is mike this is caroline and this is paul tonight we're talking about episode four the mid-season finale of season four of westworld it was called generation loss it was written in uh once again by kevin lau and susan rubel who were also wrote last week's episode and it was directed by paul cameron paul has previously directed uh one episode of westworld the mother of exiles which was the fourth episode of season three for whoever directed episode two was the same person who directed episode two last year uh last season also so is they this like one of those shows that does it in in pairs like that or is it just just kind of coincidental they have not had the same director yet week to week okay uh, but this is this is the first time we're having two writers week to week like back to back so but uh paul's been with the show for a while though because he was he's a cinematographer by trade and i think he has uh done the dp for one or two episodes of the of the show in previous seasons he's an old hand at westworld an old host maybe a split face <laughs> uh but this is first only his gen. second time yeah first gen but only his second time directing an episode just to remind you guys that we assume you've watched the episode this is not a recap we're just going to be hitting our our highlights and lowlights and giving our predictions and commentary so please go watch the episode if you haven't already and come on back and then if you like what we have to say please remember to rate review and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Audible, wherever you listen to podcasts so that other people can find it and we don't have to send the host goon squad after you. You do not want host in black coming up being like, hey, have we noticed that you didn't give us a five star review? Dude's immortal. I'm not the reviewer that I used to be. (laughs) (laughs) Because fucking Holoris will strap you to the back of a seat of a car, put a fly in your eye, and then you will give us a five star review. (laughs) Uh, Before we get into tonight's episode, I wanted to to look back a little bit and talk about a couple of things from last week from just because it came up after it's always something once we hit record stop, I always think of things that I meant to talk about. One of the big things was we didn't really talk about the white horse that starts off Bernard's exploration of the sublime that leads him to Akichita. I thought the white horse was interesting because, you know, most shows, especially if you watch like Yellowstone, it's always a wolf 
right? It's always a wolf that's leading you to something. I, there was even a wolf in this scene, but this wolf was picking over dead corpses, you know, in the Westworld massacre, you know, in that main street of Sweetwater. But we had a white horse here. So white horses are interesting because they are traditionally a symbol of purity, righteousness, the heroes are closely associated with white horses, but it's also seen as maybe you're an in, as an indication that you're on the right path towards enlightenment, which I like a lot for Bernard, especially given that it leads him like the maze. It leads to to Akichita and to seeing all these worlds and the path that he has to take to save humanity. So I like that a lot. I don't know if what you guys have to think about that aspect of the white horse. It's deep symbolism there, Mike. When you say the path to uh, enlightenment, uh, although I'm not as... Uh familiar with Bible stories, as a TV reviewer probably should be, I do go to um, Gandalf, Gandalf the White, or, or rode, a, <laughs> rode a white horse. No, he did. When, when, and, I know, but why'd you bring up the Bible for? Well, because that's on the <laughs> note sheet there. It's on the notes. That's funny, did though, you, that you said I did that. the reading. Uh, <laughs> You're I, like, I don't do a lot of Bible reading, but Gandalf, <laughs> like as if he was related to the Bible. Oh, I see. Gandalf's as close as I'm going to get. I know. We'll let it fly. Tolkien is like all Bible for nerds. See, I mean, it's 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 definitely Christian based. Depending uh, on 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 the on on the uh, point in time when you look, the Lord of the Rings series outsells the Bible. I'm all good with that, and I'm not picking on the nerddom. I'm just it was just a funny way that you said it. It it tickled my my funny bone a little bit. I I almost always buy a Bible. They give them for free in hotels. You could just walk away with a clean, free Bible. Like you can't get well, you can't get like the Cimmerillion in a, in a hotel chain. But you can exactly, get the Bible, so. exactly. <laughs> They're not giving away Tolkien's words. <laughs> well, you know. So this path towards enlightenment, I think, is interesting. But there is obviously uh, the white horse elephant in the room. In Revelation, there are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. There's the pale horse, that's death. There's the red horse, that's war. There's the black horse, that's famine. And then you have the white horse, which, depending on your interpretation, is either conquest or pestilence. A white horse of pestilence also makes a lot of sense in this fly-infested humans are being enslaved and, and being literally their mind being taken over by insects. But also in Revelation, you have Christ coming down for Judgment Day riding a white horse. So a lot of mixed messages, even in the Bible, even in the same book of the Bible, a lot of mixed messages on what that white horse represents. So, but but also I think Bernard is also at a crossroads on what it might represent. It may be pestilence, but it also may be enlightenment. I always appreciate when there's some animal symbolism like that. Remember, Paul, when we did the leftovers and they used the deer Mm. and it was very much we did a lot of like studying up about like, what does it mean if you see the deer? And it's really about like starting your hero's journey and all this stuff. And it was fascinating. So I love it when they like add little little layers like that into stories. Don't get me going on the hero's journey. Get some monomyth going up in here. We won't. (laughs) don't worry we won't uh one thing that i only heard when we watched when i watched the hbo aired version it was not really audible in the screener upon which we based our recording was in temperance flies are buzzing everywhere constantly it is constantly being closed captioned that there are flies buzzing like almost over all of the dialogue and certainly over all the underscore music there is fly buzzing noises on the street in the butterfly club, lots of buzzing of fly noises, which I don't remember from the screener for the episode. So that was definitely something that got added in FX wise afterwards. But man, 
becomes an important detail given this episode and, and seeing how it plays out with the infection and the infestation. It was more obvious in the bar. I forget the name of the bar, but it was more obvious in the, in the, in the bar. The Butterfly Cub. Yeah, because Maeve actually mentions the the state of the place is, but the actual sound, that buzzing sound, was was really audible in the aired version. Yeah, we we get the versions we get are pretty close to done, but like uh, I think in the second episode when they get to Temperance, there's some. 70% 70% finished blue screening <laughs> as they make their way through the town. So yeah, we get things that are not quite polished yet. Not quite polished or even in some cases completely changed. You know, some scenes end up playing differently. Music gets changed sometimes. Yeah, that's um, true. You know, and, and, and obviously effects. Here's another one. In the screeners, it was not obvious in the bottom of one of the people in the cage, um, the guy who shoots himself in the uh, lab. Yeah. One, that was Navarro, which I totally missed. I didn't put together that that was actually Navarro, but that is Josh Randall. It's the same guy who was playing the deputy assistant ge- attorney general in the, you know. See, and I kept, I kept asking Paul over and over again. I was like, surely we're supposed to recognize the man and the woman. Surely we are. And like, we, I was, I was like squinting my eyes and I couldn't figure out who it was. So thank God you figured that one out. Yeah, I didn't. I the woman didn't check out for me, but I was watching it again because, and I'll tell you why. On his screen and no others, in the very lower left hand corner, if you blow it up really wide, it gives the name of the project. It says it's called Project Chrysalis, and then Ooh. it gives a very technical name, uh, like a subtitle. It's the Infrasound Inducted Obedience Trial. Um, so when I was staring, I was like, that guy looks familiar. So I looked at IMDb and I com- I compared it that it is Navarro was the same guy. Um, but yeah, so Project Chrysalis, a chrysalis, for those that don't know, is either refers to a transition period of an insect's development stage, or it is the actual protective shell that protects a developing insect. Uh, you know, it's the casing around which that it develops inside. So chrysalis, this, this transitional, transformational state. Very interesting, given what Holoris is trying to pull off here with her experiments. Also indicating rebirth. I mean, it's not for us, but it's still there. <laughs> Much like Christina. And obviously, the last obvious thing that we we didn't mention and we should have, because I mentioned how the flies flocking to Caleb indicated that he was a human, because they completely ignored Maeve, who we know is a host. Another clear indicator that Caleb was a human was he got hit with a lot of bullets that had no effect on him. We should have been able to definitively say uh none of because none of those bullets hurt him and we know that it affected Maeve obviously he was human at least that point in time if I held Paula and Caroline captive for the four hours that I would I would minutely take apart every single scene and frame in the episode they would both come to New York and slaughter me things have to give way in discussion you can't talk about all of the nitty-gritty but that's what the week in between is for right that's what the time in between episodes is for to forgive Mike <laughs> we just meet at the water cooler and discuss it. Hope for hope for some generation loss. Mm. Paul, you're a tech guy. You you do a lot of our tech stuff. I was curious if generation loss uh rang a bell with you. Sure. Well, the easiest way to think of it is the old uh, idea of of either xeroxing or mimeographing for the oldest members of the listenership. A copy of a copy of a copy very much degrades as you get further away from the original. So that would be 
each one of those copies representing a generation, each one of those degradations would be loss. But here we're talking in a digital realm. What we have found is that even though, yes, uh, I mean, copies are, are exact from, you know, hard drive to hard drive or DVD to hard drive or whatever, there's still something that happens, say, like when we are recording our podcast, we have to also compress the data in order to more efficiently use the space on your phone or wherever you're listening to the podcast. And so although it sounds pretty much the same as we recorded it, we are losing data. That also is indicative of a generational loss. Can we also go ahead, since we're doing like a tech corner, can you define fidelity for those people who may be uncertain as to what that actually means? My understanding of it is not uh, exactly Webster's. It's it's more like the integrity of that copy. If you were to do like a one-for-one, bite-to-bite, bit-to-bit match from the source to the copy, would it be exact or so close that you couldn't even tell the difference? So they kind of go hand in hand, though, with what you're just talking about with the generational loss portion. Like it's like we know that generational loss exists. So you have to check that that check is doing the fidelity check, right? To like compare like, okay, so now this is the third copy. How does that compare with the first? Or how does the fifth one compare with the first? And like to see what was lost, right? As you're making copies, that's the fidelity testing portion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for listeners who are unsure, because a lot of people, I mean, that word is used in a lot of different ways in a lot of different shows. And and this one, it's used in such a specific way and it's so tied in with generational loss. I want to make sure we were talking about that. We've seen it, though, in so many different ways now, because the the whole ongoing cycle with the Jim Delos host, he kept failing his fidelity checks because he couldn't get through life as Jim Delos. At some point, he would glitch. And and that copy of him wouldn't be able to move forward. It was not a faithful copy. I mean, fidelity stemming from the word fidelius, faithfulness, right? And so a copy that's bad, you know, or Caleb here who has to learn that he is the 278th iteration of Caleb since his death. She's doing a fidelity check because she has to make sure that he is a good copy or is doing a check to see if he is a good copy of the original Caleb. I think there's an element of that failure that maybe isn't tied to fidelity, but they're calling it that. That aspect of when you learn that you're not you anymore, that seemed to be a part when – when I mean, Del, the Jim Delos part, he seemed to fail at various points, you know, like right. – pouring his coffee or whatever. So it wasn't actually a good copy. There seems to also be a lot of stress once you find out that you're a soulless machine versus when the moment before when you thought you were yourself and alive like normal. Yeah. I mean, there's that whole great exchange when he says, I'm still me. I mean, she's just so cold. I love her in the, actually that scene, but she's like, you're certainly a version of you. The question you should be asking isn't where but when how long have you been here why are you asking me that it's part of an interview to establish a baseline baseline fidelity No. 
are certainly a version of you. I believe the 278th. Um, but yeah, I mean, he handles it worse than Jim Delos. I felt like took it really well when he every time he learned he was a copy of himself. The idea of there's a script, and if you are a good copy, uh, an accurate copy, you're gonna follow the same script, your same loop every single time. You're not gonna deviate. If they offer you scotch, you're always gonna take the scotch. You're not gonna be like, oh, I'm on a diet this week, you know, or something yeah. like that. It's gonna be like a, it's gonna be a good copy. Right. You don't sleep in on accident like old Christina. Like, you know, you don't right. you don't get off your loop. You know, you, you keep doing everything the same. It definitely seems maybe there's a loss of fidelity with Christina. I mean, she's she's drawing black towers. She's drawing black towers over her cityscape painting. Yeah, well, let's talk about it. So how do you guys thinking Generation Lost plies to this title? I, I think there's a couple of obvious ways, but I think there's also a couple of subtle ways, though, too. I'm curious what you guys think applying the title to the uh, to the episode like something like Christina, where we're seeing, you know, her change and, and getting off of her loop, basically, and, and things sort of that the more questioning and stuff like that. And I don't even know, as we discuss this, and as we kind of tease it out, I don't know what we think about the roommate and her talking about, you know, the flies and the and her parents and the stream she had and everything like it, it's like there's some sort of realization happening in that moment, even though she's calling it a dream. We'll tease it out because I don't know exactly what all this means yet. But and then, I, of course, with Caleb, you know, I feel like we're seeing I don't I want to talk about Caleb so bad. I have a hard time knowing where to jump in exactly with him because I want to jump in at the beginning. But like we're talking about his death portion and there's a part there's so much to that that I feel like I want to talk about when it comes to this loss and grief and everything and how that changes you as a person like in the moment. So I, I want to talk about that part, but I don't know where we want to jump in with that. So I'm going to I'm going to toss the generation loss title question over to Paula. Well, there's always you know the original guy the um, bernard to to think of cuz he was uh an an example of a of a pretty good copy i don't know that that he counts in the in the fidelity testing aspect of the show cuz he wasn't ever meant to to know that he was arnold at least not initially true but remember dolores puts him through a fidelity test check uh when she prints his body i think in the second season uh, he's answering the questions that she had always been traditionally answering. Yes. He asks her some question and she says, you know, for fidelity, she, she's putting him through the same paces that he would normally put her through. So as a host, I, I think as a host, though, he's probably been replicated the least amount of times. He seems to survive longer than most of the other host bodies, it seems. Ooh, that's a good question. I bet there's someone out there who's like, that's not true. He's been re he's been redone like 1,250 times. But that would be curious to know. Maeve has probably been, sh because she, as much as she gets shot up, I don't think they were probably printing new bodies for her. So she's probably actually only on her second body, her original body that they just kept patching up. And then the post-escape from Westworld print of Maeve. Hmm. They've always been a little cloudy about... What they do, I mean, they, they, because they have the butchers who are there to take out the bullet holes and the bacteria and bullshit mm. that are growing in them. That's and right. Then they hand them over to somebody else, I guess, to get them running again. Because if you remember, they weren't allowed to, to reprogram. Yeah, yeah, to program to get them up on their feet again. Mm -hmm. um, they could shut them down, obviously, because that's, that was their trouble with Maeve is, is that they, they argued about it. You were supposed to shut her down. No, you were supposed to. You remember that? Yeah, to put her to sleep because they were doing the diagnostic to see that she had like that infection in her belly. Yeah. Yeah. But then from there, it was always um, as a watcher, it was always like, you and you know, they, they get blown to hell and you clean them up enough 
both on their skin and internally to get them back and running the next day without keep printing a new one? Because that never seemed to – like printing new ones seem to be for new characters, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's just when your body is so torn up, they need to move your brain ball into <laughs> – well, it seemed even with all of the money that they threw at the park, it seemed like it was still a high price ticket item to have those printers. They were still a premium, not like this current situation where they have entire rooms and maybe buildings devoted to printing hosts. Well, mm-hmm. and yeah. and that the the secret of the fact that there was a brain ball, the pearl concept would have been revealed too early to us, I think, if they were to say we're printing new bodies, because then that someone might have started to ask questions earlier than they would have wanted to in the story about like, well, how do you move this personality from like point A to point B, you know, into a new body when if you could just kind of be like, oh, all we do with these guys is just patch them up over and over again. Like, you know, so they weren't going to like let us in too much on that until they were ready to reveal. No, there's like a little ball in here that we can remove. Yeah, yeah, right. Because when so they when it it, told us too much too soon. When they when it came to the uh, the data smuggling, mm-hmm. remember Stubbs just cut off the guy's whole head. Yeah. So. so I think it's important that it's like they didn't tell us too much too soon. I have two instances of generation loss that are out of the box of the technical definition that I think are applicable in this episode metaphorically, but I'm going to keep that like a magician in my envelope and reveal it later as we go through. Cause I think, I think when I go to that, it'll have more impact. Uh, so <laughs> Caroline, to answer your question, I think we jump in. I think we have to jump in with Maeve and Caleb before we can get to Holoris and Caleb, because I think without Maeve and Caleb and all of the backstory that they fill in and, and the glimpses we get to see at their time together, I think the impact of Holoris and Caleb is lessened without that stuff. Yeah, I was happy that we had this flashback to the lighthouse and that we actually, well, let me, let me start by saying, I thought that this entire episode really had a lot of like, here's the answers you're looking for. Like, we're going to go back to that exact point in time and we're going to show you exactly what happened and, or we're going to give you a voiceover that tells you all the in between and what exactly was happening over here. There was a lot of that again, that I Having done the rewatch, I don't remember getting such clean answers to things. You know, we'd always have to go on like, you know, theories and, you know, just this is what we've gathered with our clues. Right. This was very blunt and very straightforward in a lot of ways, which I do kind of want to ask you guys storytelling wise. Did that work for you? Are you happy that it was like pretty like plain spoken in terms of like, why did Maeve leave? How did the, you know, the electricity you know situation bring make it so that Hale could find them like all the things that it was like here's the answers you're looking for did that work for you guys to like plug in some holes as a watcher that that does want some very solid answers to get a a footing so that I can go forward and understand how the show works yes as a fan who has come become accustomed to only getting a breadcrumb trail up until the finale where they do some sort of like show don't tell kind of way of yeah, making like all it clicks. all coming together. That's why I've come back to this show is because of that way of storytelling rather than just, you know, a long car ride and someone explaining to me how Hale found them or, or whatever that. So I guess I'm, I'm more on that side of it. I wish it had still been a little murkier because i that's what i like about this show is that it leaves it to us to figure it out narratively it works for me because the show is on the the tail end of it even if it gets season five 
this show still has to start taking stuff in for a landing. And you can't forever keep introducing new mysteries without wrapping stuff up. Now, that sounds very final and kind of like I'm, I'm, I'm like getting ready to turn off the lights. Not at all. But I think they have to give you some answers here because they don't know if they'll have a season five. They probably will. But let's say season four is it. You only have eight hours to wrap up this story. So they have to be a little more blunt. But two, it really works for me because even with the plain spoken answers that they're giving us, they're they're giving they're setting up these these challenges and then giving us plain spoken answers to solve them. They're still mind blowing. Even this episode, which says, this is how we did the trick. This is where we're at. This is how it all links up. I'm still like, oh, my fucking God. You know, like it's still kind of like flipping my lid. My brain ball is just spinning. And 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 so it works for me because I'm still being blown away by the creative process that's behind this. I mean, this is an imaginative creative team that has come up with this show, even with these plain spoken answers. I think that given that it's, you know, mid-season, this is episode four, you have to remember that not all audience members watch like we watch. We watch several times. We take notes. We discuss it ad nauseum with other people. Then we come together and we discuss it again. And we do research. We look at, you know, and talk to other people and, and get all these ideas together and bring them to you guys. But for a lot of people, you know, maybe they listen to our podcast and that's the extent of it. Maybe they just watch the show and that's it. And so... I can understand where you're midway through this fourth season. I liked when you said like the foothold comment, Mike, because that feels like, yeah, you've got to, some people are really scraping along. I'm in a couple of Westworld groups and, and I'm seeing some comments of like, it's getting too confusing. There's too many new situations. I, I want to understand better, but I don't really get where they're going. So if you kind of like grab everyone's hand in episode four and say, Let's it's kind of like it's kind of like leading a group of, of kids, right, with like a long line and everyone's holding hands and you realize there's like some ragtags in the back and you like stop for a second and you're like everybody kind of catch up and then we can proceed together because this next part is going to get even crazier. That's how I kind of felt this episode was like, let's all get closer to the same page. We all kind of get that there's different timelines now and and all that stuff for anyone who hadn't gotten it thus far. Let's be real clear. We, we've got one timeline, 23 years in the future, you know, the, the 2091 timeline. We've got the 2068 timeline. These are who is where with who and when. And Caleb is a host now. Ta-da! You know, so um, <laughs> let's talk about the little, the romance language, though, because we spent a bunch of time talking in episode two when they were on the train. And we, they, we hear about the lighthouse and what happened after the lighthouse the first time. Uh, now we know it was Caleb being almost mortally wounded and Maeve staying there by him, but then leaving him when he was not on his feet. That's clearly what they're talking about in the, I want to talk about what happened after the lighthouse, but there's still this romantic aspect to it. The way she tells the story of staying by his side, but then realizing our people are at uh, in a perpetual struggle. Um, I, I'm calling it the, the Maeve confession. I sat at your bedside for weeks, fearing the worst. I confronted something I had never confronted before. Mortality. The finality of death in your kind. You asked me once what a regular life would look like for you. 
I saw a vision of how it could be. For you to be free. It was extraordinary. Our kinds are locked in a perpetual struggle. I wanted you to do more than fight to survive. I wanted you to have something to fight for. It was very Romeo and Juliet to me. It was very like star-crossed lovery the way she was telling the story. And that she walked away from him so that he could have a life more than just fighting to survive, but something to survive for. Great call by you, Caroline, on the Florence Wadi Nikhail Mm -hmm. uh nurse falling in love aspect that definitely seems how that all came about so good call on that even though that's good wordplay <laughs> for those of you who like you're listening to this <laughs> in the car and you're like just barely listening definitely the florence nightingale syndrome of wadi being like the caretaker and paul mentioned that too that like somehow she was going to end up being like a pt person or something a nurse something that interacted because there was no part of caleb that seemed like he headed out on the dating scene and <laughs> romanced someone like there definitely seemed like someone had to come into his life in a very natural organic way do you guys buy and if you even buy it do you care about this romance angle this life that might have been between Maeve and Caleb is it too late are you are you too hardcore for Maeve and Hector uh you know Maeve be just being on her own where do you guys fall on this potential love that never was I think it was important to kind of have a moment where we went down that rabbit hole in terms of how can hosts and humans coexist and like could they have like relationships like this and what would be the pitfalls of them and like the the pros and cons that the I loved when he was teasing her and she was saying oh there's actually 12 guys you know there's like seven inside whatever and he was like show off like stuff like that and they were like going back and forth like it was a very clear like we're two different types of people but not you know whatever i don't i don't i don't know what the right word is species i don't know what where they could kind of like point out each other's uh talents and skills and things like that and be like that with one another and then show the the ways that they were the same like the way that caleb did have you know the implant in his mouth and that she could interact with him on this other level that wasn't just you know human I thought that that was like a really cool spin on all of that. But then also just how painful it is to be immortal and how difficult it is to see like you having a relationship with a human and having those people die off. It showed the struggle and the anguish of being immortal, which I think really fed into when Caleb realizes now he's essentially immortal and his anguish over that, you know, there's much there. There's a lot of layers of why that there's anguish there. But I think that that having heard Maeve's story about it kind of prepared us for when we kind of have the reveal that now Caleb is also quote unquote immortal. It doesn't mean immortal like we think of immortal like you would ask like a genie in a bottle like, oh, my God, I would live forever. That's so like like as if you're skipping through a field and it's so wonderful when in reality it's like and now you get to witness suffering for eternity <laughs> of all the things you love and all the things you hold dear will constantly leave your life. I you mean, know, Caleb's first words when he realizes what Holores is telling him is not about himself. It's 
my my yeah. daughter, my wife. It, I mean, he trails off. He came in to complete the thought, but you clearly he's talking about like they they're gone. I mean, he's assuming. I mean, he's not doing the math here. Obviously, right. that they both probably it's only twenty three years. It's not that long. Uh, as someone who is almost twenty three times two, it's not that long, man. Don't like you know, don't be like whatever about it. <laughs> but, but like we just watched Lightyear, and there's another whole aspect to Lightyear that is about essentially kind of like the same Twilight Zone story where like, you know, someone goes away and there's like years and years and years that pass and you realize that when you come back on the scene you've missed all this stuff. So so thinking about his family, it doesn't necessarily have to be that they're dead, but that he missed out on, you know, his daughter growing up or well, where his wife would be in the and there's in been the world. A, a pestilence in the meantime. Of course, of course, all those things. You guys, I have to give like Aaron Paul huge props. The the scream he lets out when he realizes several different portions of what is happening, there there are these guttural noises he makes, and it's a, it's a bunch of different times, including when he's sitting for the fidelity test, and they're actually back in the glass kind of room with Hale. He makes out these like little guttural kind of sounds, and there's the the of course when he's like in the like demolishing kind of space over there, where like he screams and he you know to learn about your own death. You know, I mean, we're talking about Maeve facing mortality, but Caleb faces his own mortality in this. His, you know, his greatest fear is realized and he's still conscious to have to go through the grief of it. You know, I think one of the things that people can have a little bit of um, relief about with death is like, well, at least I'm gone. Like, I don't have to actually deal with it. Like, it's over for me. I, You know, you guys all stay around to grieve. But for me, it's just lights out. I don't have to feel it, but he has to like feel his own death, grieve his own death. Um, and that's like another level that I don't think I've ever seen in a story, to be honest with you, where someone says you're dead, but you still have to deal with the life around you now. And you watch them process that. I can honestly say for myself, I don't think I've ever seen someone have to go through that. I mean, I think in particular for Caleb, who we spent so much time in the first episode talking about how having a daughter and being a father seemed so central to who he had become in the intervening years since the riots and listening to Maeve give her reasoning for walking away from him and leaving him was, I mean, she says it, she says it beautifully. She says, you know, I wanted you to have more than just fighting to survive. I wanted you to have something fighting to live for a reason to live for. And so, and he did, he got this family, he got to be a dad, he got to be a father. And now he's learning that the thing that he loved the most, he was robbed 23 years of getting to participate in, you know, it's, it's like the ultimate punishment for, for your kind, the way, you know, as Holoris would say, referring to humans. Well, and a lot of times, like, I mean, Paul and I have talked about this in other podcasts, but there is the death of yourself and there is the continuing to live when the life you thought you were going to lead dies. And you're now in another place, in another time, with another set of circumstances that you never expected to be in. You sometimes are blindsided by the grief, the waves of grief that come over you during different points of your life when you're like, this would have been happening. This would have been happening had this event not gone on. You know, for those of you who have experienced that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But like, you know, just that that fork in the road. But you're still alive. But the life you had intended is not. And, uh, you know, whether that's the death of someone else or honestly, just the circumstances have changed so drastically that, you know, you're never going to be what you thought you were going to be. So I think that even that part, like, yes, he was robbed of the 23 years. 
And also he physically is dead as a human, but his whole life and everything that he thought, all the people, his whole existence died too in that moment. And so he like grieved his family and his, and his fatherhood and himself and, you know, his family, everything at once. I, but I thought it came across like it hurt, you know, when he was like yelling like that, you know. He has a great line, and I agree with you. Aaron Paul really has been knocking it out of the court. His his dramatic performances so far this season, I think, have been top notch. He says on the beachhead as he's bleeding out, "I guess I'll never know. I'll never know what a regular life after this looked like." And she taps into his, she uses her Mave power and dr- taps into his drip implant, and shows him the sublime and her and her daughter in the sublime because she calls that freedom. Because he, you know, part of the larger discussion was he wanted to be free. He wanted to not have to be a soldier, not be at war, and and just live a life of freedom. What do we think of that? Is that freedom how you think Caleb thinks about it? Is that Maeve just doing the best she can to soothe him the way one of the limbic tabs would? Would I read that as her doing the kind of the last resort trick because she knew she could do it. But apparently this is the first time she'd ever done it. Her friend was dying and going into shock, taking advantage of that system, let him survive, put his brain into a happy place and slowed down the dying process so that she could get him to a hospital. I didn't read anything else into it other than that. So you think it was like a morphine drip, essentially, like her version of giving him like a... Yeah, that's that's what I got out of it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, listeners, if you've suffered like an injury like that, I mean, your body does go into shock. I broke both of my arms at the same time. I couldn't feel my arms after that. And that is a blessing that your body can do that um, in those types of situations where, you know, you you don't have to feel that pain. But in his case, you know, it was obviously he was, you know, he was starting to get that telltale entertainment blood in the mouth. You know, you see the gut wound and they're talking and then all of a sudden you can see there's pink in their mouth. You know, it's getting red and you're like, ah, there's, 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 gonna start, there's a pink now tinge on their teeth. Like, you know where we're going. It's like to me, she kind of shut his whole system down or just slowed his system down, you know, so not only not feeling pain, but also like, you know, in the same way that sometimes they put bodies on ice, you know, when there's like a severe injury or something like like organs or whatever, and kind of just slow the system down slow the process down enough to until we can get some help yes morphine but also actually slowing his circulatory system actually slowing you know everything so that it could kind of just freeze in place like freeze all motor functions if you will (laughs) (laughs) paul you hit on something that was interesting and i wanted to dig in a little more because i think there's this instance where she says, I, I realized a while ago I could do it and has never done it before, hacking into his implants, into his drip implant. Because then later on, you have this uh, risking your life clip that Holoris is kind of stirring the pot. Let's play that clip here. Yeah, my guys will pick us up just outside the border of the park. Just need the coordinates. You'll never make it that far. They'll stop you well before then. You alone, though. You might make it. Ignore her. But you seem to make a habit out of risking your life for him. You could have lived in peace, undisturbed, if you hadn't have been so sentimental. What's she talking about? She kind of baits the hook in this scene where she says, you could have lived a peaceful life. I wasn't going to come after you, but you had to. You're always risking your life for this guy. And and so this is how where you wound up. And Caleb kind of goes like, huh? what is she talking about? And it's later on in the episode when during the confession scene, she says that 
she walked away. She wanted him to be happy. She lived alone for a long time, but the curiosity finally got to her and she used her powers instead of tapping into his limbic system. Now she used the power grid system to go spy on him, kind you know, and check on to see how he was doing. You've been alone for all these years. I knew that if I stayed put, no harm would come to you. You deserve to have something real to hold on to. That's why I left. And it would have been fine, except one day I got curious. So I reached out through the grid to find you, and... It's an interesting thing just because you have the powers, should you use the powers? Just, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And in the end, she exposes both of them and both of them are in this situation. And Caleb's family is in jeopardy now because of her going and searching him out, causing the power outage from the first episode and everything that's ensued since all stems from her not only being curious about, well, I wonder what Caleb is doing now, but using her power to go seek that out. A metaphor for being uh, an Aesop's fable for being responsible with the power that you have. Or the last hope of the human race, because if there's only these resistors that we know about, um, the resistance cell that we see later with Bernard, they don't necessarily have an inside man in this case, right? They're going to have Maeve operational, we can assume, sometime in the future. But they have this this weird experiment of of Heloris's where she's going to have Caleb as her pet. I don't know what. She seems to want to figure him out. Why was Dolores and Maeve so interested in him? So that's why she's going through this. It was this. very sexual, how she said it. Hey, sexual in a host way. Be like, these two, you know, thought you were the, you know, bee's knees. I want to see yeah. what all the Caleb action is about. So without that, though, yes, you should use your power responsibly. Although if I ever get powers, you better look out. I'm going to have a long period of irresponsibility as I, you know, kind of feel things out. Get used to the powers. Everyone has their Homelander period. Sure, sure, sure. Exactly. But then, uh, yeah, I, but without that that um, inciting action, the human race may not have its, its savior. Uh, I mean, that definitely supports the Bernard. There's only one way. You know, the, the curly from City Slickers, the one thing you hold up your finger, you know, there's only one path that leads to saving humanity. Maybe it is her being a little voyeuristic and checking in on him. What do you think, Caroline? I, I think if you go back to, you know, sort of the fable kind of idea, I think if you apply that to, you know, our lives today, there is a lot of temptation to go back and say, look at an ex like on Facebook, dig through their pictures, look through what they're doing, like that kind of stuff. Maybe maybe even insert yourself somehow into their current day life through social media stuff, liking something, looking at something, whatever you're doing, revealing yourself into their current day life. 
I think, and we've seen plenty of stories that that really upsets the apple cart. It tends to be, I mean, I think I can, I can envision dialogue where people are saying, why did you have to find me again? Like, why? Like, why? I mean, Casablanca, why do you have to freaking show up at my place, you know, of all the gin joints in all the world? Why you got to show up here? You know, like there's something about going back to, to people and digging them up in this way that just feels, I mean, it feels so human, which so I'm kind of like amazed that may have felt that way. Like that was some serious love, you know, uh, very deep seated love. And and I'm I'm going to even set in some some jealousy and and envy and some other things where she needed to see what his life was like and needed to compare and and decide, like, did I make a good choice and like that kind of stuff. There was a lot going on there, but I, I think you could 100 percent apply it to today's world. And like, do you know, remember, leave well enough alone in our previous <laughs> um, conversations. I think that that ties into this of like you go picking around, you insert yourself back into these people's lives who who you were smart enough to walk away from. You knew the right thing was to walk away and you got too curious and then, you know, you blew up their life. And I think that that happens in real life way more than, say, a robot blows up a power grid, <laughs> right? But like, you know, just people coming back into your life and finding a way to give information to the wrong people at the wrong time, accidentally. Let's move on to Holoris and Kayla, because I think I think with that background and, and knowing how deep Caleb and Maeve and their story goes and, and how Maeve is ultimately responsible for everything good Caleb got to experience, even by withdrawing herself from the picture, he got to have that life with Frankie and with Awadi for those seven years. And and I think the more really exciting part of the episode were the Holoris and Caleb interactions. I want to start with this your kind phrase that Holoris keeps using. Every conversation so far this season that she has had with a human, I can do a I can do a mega mix insertion here, and I'm definitely going to play the your kind clip from this episode right here. Soon it won't matter where they run; everyone will be under my control. <laughs> this was never about the park. This was always about you spreading your disease. <laughs> Everyone who comes here will become a carrier. I prefer the term host. Yes, Caleb. After they're done here, they'll have his souvenirs to botch memories of their exploits and my parasites. Welcome to the super spreader event of the century. You're the first wave. You should be flattered. You're gonna make me kill myself like the others. I was just me ironing out the kinks. I have better plans for you and your kind. Besides, Maeve and Dolores were always so fond of you, I'm inclined to keep you around. See what all the fuss is about. In Holoris' conversation with human William, in her conversation with Navarro in the car, twice in this episode, she refers to humans as your kind as a defense, as part of a larger defense of why she's doing what she's doing. With Navarro, she says, I've got a plan for your kind. With William, she says, your kind did this first to us. In this episode, she says, uh, she says, your kind did these kinds of experiments on us and other and other creatures first. And we're just kind of paying it back in kind. 
if you're if you listen to what she says, there is something defensible there. Humans were really shitty to these hosts, and now the hosts have responded in kind. And and you know, humans maybe do have to pay the bill a little bit for that. But is there a limit to how much of a defense that goes on for the extinction of a race, uh, the the enslavement, the mind enslavement of a race, you know, uh, of an entire race of people like she's pulling off here. Seemingly, does that excuse keep working or does it run out? Try try and not have human bias here. See, for me, I think it's fascinating that that someone who has the upper hand and is not human feels the need to give any excuse you know, feels the need to point out examples where this is justified because that alone is a very human trait, trying to justify your actions and, and why the, the, the ends justify the means and everything else. So I think that alone for me is, is a really interesting twist on like what Haloris has become. How, how many scientists you think, you know, stand around and explain to the rats why we're doing it to them? <laughs> you know, when the power structure is so imbalanced, the master above rarely feels the need to justify to those, you know, they're doing things to why we're doing it. Well, Mike mentioned uh, in a previous podcast that she's taken on aspects of a Bond villain. Yeah, true. And you're right. That is absolutely one of She's those She's definitely things. doing a lot of monologuing. And, yeah. and I'm here for it because it definitely provides a lot of answers. I'm hitting on it because the line between love and hate, right? What's the famous line about it? The line between love and hate is a very thin one, right? They're almost two sides of the same coin. And we've heard Akicha to talk about how Bernard loves humans and his, how he's devoting himself to saving humanity. We're talking this episode about Maeve's love for Caleb in a really human way. Not in a robot way, not in a host way. And what we're saying now, I think, is... Well, can I pause you right there? You guys, I think the moment of with Caleb, when he manages somehow against every odd to push past Haloris' directive, the, the flies in his head, and manages not to shoot Maeve, but instead to shoot, you know, host in black, that moment comes from pure love and I think that that is like again we're outside the bounds of what makes sense with like but technology and science and everything says you should be under mind control right now like this shouldn't you shouldn't be able to break the control and yet somehow emotion has managed to dictate what you did in that moment and that's pretty amazing well, any Harry Potter fan understands that love is the greatest uh, magic. Love magic is stronger than any other magic <laughs> that a wizard could possibly have. I think so. it speaks really nicely, though, to what you were just saying about the love and hate and how close they are. Like, you know, that Hale was trying to use hate and the hatred for Maeve that she had to get him to do this. And, and his love just is just it's just right there. It's just like just like a hair difference makes him turn the opposite way, you know, but that strong passion is there, you know? Well, I think that I think you're certainly answering a good question that I think a lot of people, including Haloris, have of how did how were you able to disobey me just now? Uh, I think it was love. I think that is. I think when he gets interrupted, but he starts to say, I have a thing that you'll never have. I think he's going to say is love. The capacity to love. The Right. Well, I like that you said that, though, because we're talking Bernard loves humans. Maeve loves Caleb. The Haloris hates humans. Guys, these are all human emotions. I At some point here, the hosts have become human. They have an exceptional lifeline uh, or, or lifespan, but 
they're really indistinguishable. These these upper level hosts, these upper functioning hosts, not like drone host guy who's in mm-hmm. the lab with the amoeba, with the maggots and flies, but like these high functioning hosts, host in black, Maeve, Holoris, uh, Bernard. These guys are human. They're indistinguishable from humans. Other than a, a, a really great brain and a really long lifespan, they have become indistinguishable from humans based on how they conduct themselves. And I think that's huge. More of an emotional spectrum as well, besides just love and hate and, and that kind of stuff. I mean, obviously, we said, like, the curiosity that Maeve had that pushed her to do that, you know, that's a level of, like, what, you know, or the jealousy or the envy and all those things. Like, those are all, like, such on the human spectrum. Even in the moment that that the Hale situation happens where she's asking, how did you disobey me? There is even some complicated mix of like she was like envious of how much Caleb loved Maeve in that moment I think she had true wonder on her face like Tessa Thompson did a good job of showing like disbelief in a way that was like not just like programmed you know zeros and ones but that was like you just blew my mind like like, I can't believe this is happening kind of thing um, that you don't normally get Computers don't ponder. Mm-hmm. They they look at they look at things like oh there's a failure in executing program X Y or Z. She was sitting there like the fuck happened? How did you do oh. that? Like that's a very human. Re- Her response to how did you disobey me was how a human responds to it, not how a machine responds to a situation. Maeve choosing to walk away from Caleb in order to save him grief and to save her the grieving process of him dying. Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's a level of empathy that you wouldn't have yes. expect from a, yes. a robot. Mm-hmm. A robot, if you will. Certainly between machines and humans, machines aren't ever supposed to be showing any empathy. They have progressed to a point where the kinds are the same. She's acting just like the worst humans who ever went to Westworld are acting. She, uh, Maeve and Bernard are acting like like the most William, young William, when he first comes to the park, moon-eyed, in love with Dolores, is acting right. The, they're they're human. Their kind is our kind. The 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 in, the internal structure may be different, but if humanity is defined by its emotional scales, these guys are human. And so, for her to keep saying your kind, your kind, your kind. At some point, that mirror looks the same. When Isn't you look it at also that. super important if you're like in a torturing kind of situation? I mean, you know, you guys know all those like college experiments where they always do where they say, um, you know, OK, we have this classroom and you guys are the prisoners and you guys are the prison guards and you, they just leave them alone. And like how quickly they start to be like, you guys have to do it like this and we're like this. And they start to do that separation because there's some like need to like if you're going to be torturing someone or hurting somebody, you have to separate yourself like well I'm not one of them so this is like acceptable for me to be like you guys it's y'all that are the problem it's not me and my you know people it's y'all that are the issue again though why does a machine need to justify any of that why does a machine need to make herself feel better for anything that she's doing you're right I think that I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you guys because I'm not I'm not the sci-fi person that either of you guys are I don't know what defines like a cyborg. I don't know what defines that mixing. I've seen things like LeVar Burton on, um, you know, like Star Trek. Like I've seen things like that, but I don't know what actually like was Caleb human when he has that drip thing in his mouth or does that automatically start to make him some sort of cyborg? A cyborg is usually considered a human brain with a mostly or completely robotic body after that. 
can it go the other way? Can you have a human body and have, I mean, that's essentially what. That's, that's more like just enhancements, like bionics okay. or something like that. So I don't know the right, I, so I don't know if we don't have the right terminology for what the different, you know, like if you kind of think of like the, the stages of evolution and you look at the different like levels, like I kind of wonder what that would look like. Caleb is an augment in the Star Trek lexicon, a <laughs> uh, 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 base off the shelf human who has had improvements made in various aspects of his biology with the with the drip implant. So then I know there's cyborgs in, say, Star Trek, as an example. Like, So then you're saying it has to be a machine body with a human brain? That has Actually, to be the definition? I don't know that there are cyborgs. Yeah, I mean, I the Borg are. would be the closest to the cyborg because they have yeah, human closest. brains that have become mostly machines in the like hive minds. Robocop is, Robocop is pr- pretty much a cyborg. Or cyborg, the, car- the comic book character from DC. Ghost in the Shell. I made you watch that whole movie. Did you learn nothing? <laughs> Uh, uh, alita battle angel she is she's bordering on cyborginess right because i think she's got a human brain i think that's right i guess one of the questions i have and why and i think it's tied up in this is why does hale have this need to make sure that caleb knows he died and make sure that caleb knows he's under her control as opposed to just simply doing the flies Turning him into, you know, an Autobot, whatever the frig we're calling these things, right? Gobot. Gobot, right? right? And going about her chores, right? Just making them, sending them off like her flying That's monkeys. Good, good question. To do the, stuff. Like, the curiosity that she states earlier is not enough for all this trouble, is it? I but mean, don't to you, me, But don't you need an envoy, though? I mean, doesn't every good terrorist or dictator don't, don't they idea. have a good envoy so i mean just using star trek, star trek again the borg they kidnap picard who is the captain of the enterprise specifically to make him an envoy to be able to speak human to the humans right to to be this emissary to bridge the two worlds you see this in a lot of different sci-fi areas but in a lot of any kind of thing where there's a conquesting army there's always there's always the person or group of people who are picked as the special pets or the envoys to act as a liaison. So, like, my, is that my what, gut like, is Maya like Caleb. is? Like, Maya might well, be that? Well, I, I, my whole feeling about Maya changed, I think, in this episode. Yeah, okay, I'm okay. pretty sure she's a fly person. Like, she's a human. But controlled by fly. No, totally agree. Magic. But so, but then, but then, why isn't that what he's saying? Why isn't that like a human? Well, who... because because she's she's treating Caleb more like more like a like a right hand consigliere than yeah. just okay. a foot soldier. More advanced. Right. Okay. Right. Like he like he, he's his permissions level is much higher than your average <laughs> fly controlled person. Uh, it seems like, or it seems like she's investing the time in him. Think of how Ford would have his favorites, right? Ford didn't sit down with all of the hosts in the park. Ford would sit down and have those interview conversations, those fidelity checks, you know, in his, his subterranean labs. Uh, she's just doing it now in a posh, you know, a high rise uh, views, you know, with a skyline view, but she's doing the same thing Ford would do. She has her favorites that she wants to be the leaders 
of her new faction army that she's creating. And I think Caleb is one of those. So I'll go with that, like, eventually. But I'm also going to keep leaning on this whole concept that she's a masochist and, like, has to have some level of torturing him. Because when she makes everyone else freeze and she's like, do you see it now? Do you get it now? Like, all that stuff. Like, you don't need to do that. You don't need to do that. (laughs) You know? To to even have him be a leader, you could have just shut down all of the rest of his thing and he could just have done your bidding without any understanding of why or who he was or that he died or anything but there's something extra where she wants him to know I killed you and this is how it worked out but remember she is a split personality of Dolores right she is a Dolores personality who has become a variant on you know, some version of Wyatt Dolores and Charlotte Hale kind of all mixed in there it's a little ambiguous but you know this this Maeve and Caleb was a late season three pairing. For most of season three, it is Caleb and Dolores who are spending time together. So maybe there's some, maybe there's some, is some genuine interest because you know, Holoris still has to have a real fucking boner spot for anything that original recipe Dolores was interested in because she sees her as the greatest traitor of all to their kind. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Caleb as as this human that paired with Dolores and brought down Rehoboam and, and took down Sirach and Insight probably has to have a lot of interest for her. This is not just your normal human. No, this, this is, is definitely human. like this is definitely like dating your friend's ex-boyfriend to flip right. the bird. I read all of her. Like, I heard all of her sure. stories about you and like yeah. I want to see for myself what for it's like. For sure, yeah. You know, taking it for a ride. You mentioned Tessa Thompson, but I think we have to give her a lot of props just for how that whole timey-wimey section of the episode played out because there's a clear shift, right? Once Maeve blows up herself in the host in black, the rest of the episode of the Caleb Holoris and then the editing cutting back and forth between them and Bernard and, uh, well, we know Frankie now, um, was really smartly done. I think it was really well edited, but all of the her talking to him in the interview, you know, saying like, think, Caleb, where were you? Where are you? When are you? You died right here. Come on, Caleb. Thank Those lights don't belong to your men. They belong to mine. All of that is just, she's just layering it on layer after layer until she finally hits him with a ton of bricks where he wakes up in his white tunic in the Olympiad offices. It was really well done. And I think it built really well where she, she took him from what he thought his real reality was to 23 years in the future. And he has no idea what the fuck is happening. So Paul, I know you had a good question about like, so did we just watch the fidelity test from beginning to end or did we experience some of Caleb and Maeve like were we with Caleb and Maeve at any point in time or was that all Caleb going through the fidelity test yeah on the second viewing that's what I was looking for 
um, to see if Haloris gave us any clues that, you know, she knew how this was going to end. She was never worried. I mean, because she, she was never really totally No, she worried. was in the back of that laundry truck like, bah, bah. But I, I <laughs> think like there really is one crack, though, when she says, how did you disobey me now? Yes, that's the part. So the, the point where it's like there's a dark, there's a black hard cut and then she when we come back she does that spin in the office chair she starts, she's like playing in the chair yeah, that's yeah. that's where we're definitely positive the test begins i just had or a, you're in the test at that yeah. point but we didn't but it was a good question because it you know just because you know she's asking she's asking caleb but she's asking the audience stop asking where you are ask when you are and so for you know for her to be prompting the audience like that then it was a good question to say did we just experience all of this you know, narration of Maeve and everything going on, does it feel so different than the regular storytelling? Because this is actually the fidelity test that Hale is giving. And it's actually Hale supplying the information that that's how she found him. You know, do you see what I mean? Like, instead yeah. of it, instead of there ever being a point where Maeve, like, told the story of how. For me, the fidelity test begins when she asks him specifically after she does the woo in the chair and her whole mood has changed. And she says, do you remember how you got here? Come on, Caleb, think. I think that's the start of the test. I think all of that, when he sends the coordinates, when he's hearing his guys initially, he hears that the family is safe. They lost Carver. I think all of that is the show, is the timeline of us watching it to that endpoint. And then the fidelity test pick up where she then fills in for him. She forces him along the rest of the way that your guys never came to save you. My guys came in and shot you to fucking the death. You know, I think from that point on is where the fidelity test picks up. I, so I'm going to take the other side and say, I think that this, because of how Hale was so like, whatever about the whole time, like she never fought back or anything. I'm going to go with this was all her walking Caleb through all these memories that we were seeing and her maybe even injecting some shit and saying like, this is how Hale found you. It goes like Maeve did this. I'm going to put that through because it just felt so different with all the exposition. It just felt so different with these narrations and stuff like that, that like it actually makes sense to me if those narrations were like placed in there to help the memories come together to get Caleb that's, to where she was. That's fair. And so I'm just going to say, I, I just to play games and just be like, okay, I'll, I'll take the other side on that. So, Paul, for you, I don't know where you fell in all of it because you were the one that brought up the question. And I was like, after you said that and after I really started watching Hale, I was like, she just she was not she was just walking through the story. She never really reacted to anything that was happening. She was never captive. You know, yeah. nothing was ever really happening to her. So I don't know. That's where I'm going to land. Yeah, it's 23 years. And there's been 278 versions of Caleb. What is she doing to this guy? Like, is is it because he fought against it like Delos did and the programming didn't take that they required so many, so many attempts at a good, a good copy of him? Or has she been like using him like how she says, you know, she took out my henchmen, but don't worry, I could always rebuild. Is she using Caleb as cannon fodder that she has had to make so many different Caleb's? 278 over 23 years is a lot. Maybe... Since Caleb was classified by Rehoboam as a word that we'll use in the Bernard and Stubb storyline, an outlier, and he had the ability at great you know, physical cost to him to disobey his flyborn programming, in her attempts to wipe out the human race, maybe it's only outliers that are able to resist and she wants scorched earth 
So the going flipping over to Stubbs and and Bernard, how how that team departs, going to look for another outlier. Perhaps that's because these are the only people that are left that can do any good against against the bots, against the hosts. So, so, so you're saying that she would use Caleb an outlier himself to go track down other outliers and eliminate or, them? Possibly, or just understand what about his wiring yeah. made it so that he could disobey. That makes sense, because like if, if you think about it, like maybe that part where he shoots, the way that she asks him, it seems like she honestly wants to know the answer. So if you're kind of going with the, like it wasn't just an exasperation, like she was really like, how? No, for real. How did you <laughs> not have to listen to me? Well, she knew Host in Black was going to be waiting. She knew where they were going. She knew the Host in Black was there with his mm-hmm. sniper rifle. So I think a lot of her, like, I, whatever, dude, like, you need, I, I'm not giving you up my leverage because you want the fly out of your head. So I'm, I'm, you're not going to do anything to me. And I know my guy is going to be there waiting to save me. I think that explains a lot of her nonchalant attitude. The how did you disobey me seemed like she was really rocked back on her toes. That's why it made me think it was part of the real life experience versus the memory part of the test. Well, and also, I mean, you can go back through and say, okay, but it could also just be that like, this is like, maybe he disobeys her repeatedly. And every time she, he disobeys, he gets killed. And then she replays the scene somehow. Trying and to figure and out. yeah, trying to figure out like, how did he disobey it? How, that's... how did he do it? I and mean, that's how you do an experiment, right? You keep, you keep rebuilding the model and seeing, will this one do it? That's just over 12 Caleb's a year for 23 years, by the way, if you're doing the math. You know what? We just watched Lightyear. And let me just tell you, we figured out that, like, basically he would come back and go directly back out. So I feel like that's it. She could have done 10 a day. You know, she's just like continually running that scenario to be like. Well, uh, this I think time? I was suggesting that there is a Caleb of the Month Club that every month she gets a new Caleb delivered. Like Columbia like, House, yeah, like with like a new peanut or something like that, mm-hmm. and like his packaging kind of thing. Like, oh, this month he's macadamia. Oh my, this weird little thing. <laughs> so like a like a month like another the month club. No, that's not, I don't know another like the month. Like no, or jelly of the month club. Like a Harry and David's. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Get like, yeah, pears and shit. Like this is a tropical <laughs> pear. The biggest reveal to us of the conversation was in finding out the twenty-three year jump and how she went about doing it. The parasite worked on adults initially, but there was always some. Um, Resistance. At a certain age, your brains become more rigid, difficult to change. Fortunately, that's not the case with children. Your children are so fucking good at taking orders. With them, it was seamless. The parasite growing in perfect symbiosis with their minds. It took a generation for those children to mature, for me to gain complete control over your world. So I don't know how it made you feel as humans, guys, but it was not great for me to hear that it only took one generation for humans to be completely enslaved. That was very depressing to listen to. But it makes sense, though, how she I mean, I like this is the season four thing. They just explain it. She she doesn't mince words. She doesn't use a lot of elliptical language. She just explains it. Depressing, though, no? 
Yeah, but, you know, we've just lived through various stages of, you know, lockdown for for a real-life pandemic. And for whatever reason, when the pandemic started, I decided the best thing for me to do would be to listen to audiobooks that all featured pandemic-style apocalypses. So I was really— Which was only funny for, like, the first week. So I listened to The Stand and several other things. I was going to say, that's a lot of Stephen King's uh, Well, what did we watch? What was the movie that we watched? Contagion. Yeah, we watched that. that and then after that, I was like, and it kept, and since we were still in COVID, I was like, yeah, I'm done with like any more of that stuff. But the there's one thing that comes up a lot in that style of apocalyptic storytelling, and it's something along the lines of society is only like three meals away from anarchy. Supply chain issues have driven this country to the brink of insanity. I thought you were going to get to the point where you were going to say that, like, really, you say generations. It took two years to sort out people in a different way. Two years. That was it. People we were friends with before were not friends with now. People who, you know, acted one way don't act the same way they did they do now. And so I feel like it only took two years to do like the the uh, colander test of like who came out the other side and who acted differently. And and it that's it. Two years. It, it and it was a, like a different world. It is sort of an interesting thought experiment, given what we've all gone through. I wonder if it ran through the writer's room at all just what that intervening 23 years would look like given how we all treated each other with this other kind of unexplained thing that happened right because this would be largely unexplained too it would just right, kind of come up out of nowhere would, well and we actually got the narration of it from maya when she said suddenly my parents were doing this like i mean she explained what it would look like in real time yeah. from a kid's point of view mm-hmm if she says it kind of tongue in cheek, but I mean, she could have just turned to the camera and winked at us when she says that the park is basically the super spreader event of the century. Oh, uh, and then when she said, and when she said, on the nose, much. when she said, yeah, you're right. the first wave, I thought, I mean, I thought there was tons of pandemic language that was like looking at us like, you guys, this wouldn't even take that long before we would be right there. And not only that, but you guys, again, with Maya, now I'm kind of wondering who Maya is since we are going to have our other reveal for the outlier, because we know that her parents, she would be the next generation. So I'm kind of curious if we know her parents. Just one thing. I just want to take a a quick lap because we called in an episode before that temperance was going to wind up not being about the park, but about her experiments. And Caleb specifically calls her out on that when he's like writhing around on the floor, you know, towards the beginning of the episode. You know, right when she says the super spreader event of the century line, he says it was never about the park. It was just about spreading your disease. We kind of called that in the episode before. So I was was like, duh. (laughs) she's like yeah i didn't want to create a park where you guys can keep raping us no i had ulterior motives thanks and really though i think it's a little bit bullshit to say that the first park didn't have alternative motives i mean there was always some amount of experimenting that ford was doing with humans and seeing what people did now maybe he wasn't as diabolical but once delos got involved once he sold the interest to delos delos got right into the business of data mining uh, data mining human the guest mines not the it was yeah it was almost i think for ford and arnold it was about the experimentation of this host and human and revealing your true self i i think it's what would people do if no one was looking right revealing your true self that that whole revealing your true self concept i think that's what their original intent was and then arnold 
became the host of Reaching Sentience, and that became his arc. But I think almost immediately, as soon as a corporation was involved, it was a, not about the park experience. It was, it was, you know, it wasn't Disney. Like we want to make sure everyone has a magical time. It was we're Disney. We want to fucking track everything you do. Right. You know. You know, I'm so I'm going to go back to that original like concept of your true self in the park because I want to put it out there, and, and we can decide at the end of this entire series. That's the superhero question, right? It is if you had a superhero, if you had a superpower, what would it be and what would you use it for? Ask every teenage boy. It's invisibility and I want to spy on girls in the shower like Porky style. Like, <laughs> right? And probably a decent amount of older like men too. Like <laughs> Right, but it's it's what would you do if you had a superpower and you weren't going to have any kind of consequences for your actions? I mean, I, I, I like to think most people wouldn't go off the rails completely pariah style or man in black style but there's probably some darkness there that you're gonna that you're gonna you know let in a little bit i when i'm in the buzz lightyear ride at disney and i'm shooting the gun at the at the fake animatronics that's not my true self i'm not killing you know what i'm saying like i'm not i'm not i'm yes i'm shooting a gun at a robot but i'm not you know that's i didn't leave being a murderer you know Think what Paris said last week when she brought, busted into the Westworld manas, uh, massacre part of the game. Yeah, she said it was cathartic. She's like, it's so cathartic. Her name, by the way, in the show is Deborah. I like Paris better. That's hilarious. So we can keep, we can keep calling her that. But <laughs> Deborah was how uh, close captioning credited her. So. I mean, obviously, it only takes one generation to kind of, you know, dismantle us. So I don't even know if what our true selves are. It seems so freaking paper thin that maybe it doesn't matter. Here's an interesting thought on the how did you disobey me there? How did you disobey me was a comment that she said 23 years ago. Then as they get closer to him coming to in the future, in the white tunic, in the in the Olympiad office, she explains how adults at first responded well to it. But then they began to resist the programming. And we found that children were much more susceptible to being controlled like humans. Humans had rear children that were susceptible to control. And so that the parasites inserted at a young age could grow in perfect symbiosis with with the children as they grew to maturity. And it took one generation to take over your world. I was wondering, looking backwards, if the answer to how did you disobey me led to the research realizing that humans, adult humans, could resist the parasite after a while. What Caleb demonstrated in the shed ultimately gave a clue to refining her technique in how to best infect humans. Kind of blows your mind. It's it's one of those things where he did a good thing by resisting her and shooting the host of Black instead of Maeve, but it maybe potentially led to her becoming a better enslaver well i mean just for this one generation that we know of we're well, i mean we're pretty sure we got to come out on top somehow live side by side with these hosts somehow or just wipe them all out i think we're on the right track but it's, it's, it's definitely a research element here rather than just constantly needing to punish poor caleb Right. I think it's a little, I think it's a cathartic punishment that has actual scientific research. Yeah. She's not sad when he, you know, freaks out and dies. Right. When she, the smirk she gives when he runs out of the room and she's smirking at him when she says, time for a new narrative. It was time for a new narrative. Totally half expecting her to say, why do they always run? Right. Because that's, I feel like that's what the trope always is like when the criminal <laughs> runs kind of thing. But she kind of just smirks after him. She's like, here we go. He always runs out of the building, you know, crazy white tunic wearing Caleb running through the streets of Olympiad Park or wherever the fuck they are. 
I, I thought it was a very cool piece of editing. Now, they spoiled it a little bit in the trailer because we see this scene in the trailer where he's out on the street and she freezes all motor functions on the street. And all these people, Caroline, you have pointed out the fashion weeks ago, all of the black and white people, he comes out of that Olympiad office with the Olympiad spinning doors. Caleb is now in Christina's world. Is he in the same timeline as Christina? That's the big question for me coming out of this episode. He's definitely in the same place she is, I think. I think we could say he's in the same place as she is, fashion-wise and the Olympiad building-wise, but are they in the same timeline? Are they there at the same time, which then puts Christina in the same timeline as Stubbs, Bernard, Caleb? Guesses? Do you want to take a guess? Do you want to even want to proffer a guess? Four episodes left in this season... Seems like they should be in the same place at the same time now, but we haven't gotten any any clues, and like the fashion would be too subtle for me to make the connection. I mean, I did notice kind of the Brave New World aspect of the very monochromatic. Yeah, yeah, very um, binary zeros and ones, black and white. Mm-hmm. Like Horloris is not concerning herself with Fashion Week. It's do you want to wear your black tunic or your white tunic today? I think there might have been a shot of the Olympiad building with Logo in this and with uh, Christina. So maybe Well, that. it says Olympiad on the door of both, where she comes through and she doesn't go in because the dead birds yeah. same look like the same kind of doorway as what he comes out of. The, the only thing that was different for me was we have this shot and this episode ends on them panning all the way off pretty much where like... Ellis Island would be kind of or near where like the Statue of Liberty would be in New York, except for now it's a giant mind control tower sitting there humming and thrumming. Now, is that tower present in Christina's? I can't remember if they've shown us very far off off coast off the tip of Manhattan in her world. I know we've gotten some skyline shots in her world, but I don't know the camera has panned so far to the right that we'd be able to see if the tower was there or not. No, it's the first time I know of. Just talking about the black and white portion of it, we had seen the tower before and it had been white. We see Christina the morning that she wakes up late and the tower she's drawn is black. When we meet Maya, she's wearing a white dress. That's the only time she wears white, so far as I can remember. She wears black the rest of the time. Christina always wears black. She doesn't wear white. The tower always appears black in, in almost all of the drawings that we've seen. The homeless man's drawings, it was right, a black the drawings, drawing. But, right. right, but we see it as white until some of those drawings, right? And it's still until Christina that morning when things are obviously disrupted. And Christina says something interesting to Maya. She says, does that look like anything to you? Which is a play on that doesn't look like anything to me, what the host would always say if they were prompted with something from modern times. But funny that you say prompted because then that is Maya answers her with that dream stuff. And so she when she does have some sort of reaction to that and does have some sort of I can only guess memory in some way. So I'm 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 curious if they come in white outfits and they turn into black outfits at some point, maybe when they completely give over. I don't know. There does seem to be something to who's wearing white and who's wearing black. The tower might be something they can't see. We've had some some thoughts about their ability to see things like birds seeing the building, them seeing the building, whatever. But the tower definitely seems more apt to be programmed out of their 
their vision. Right. It's something there, something that's controlling them, but something that they are programmed right to not. You can't have a Bastille day if you can't see the Bastille. (laughs) Right. Maybe it looks like the Statue of Liberty to them or, you know, or, you know, something else like offshore, uh, like a giant, like. I assumed because like, it was white, it, you could you could just blend, and then those who see it as black, it's like it's that's not. It's like looming over them. Well, I think I think I think this is where you have to come back to Peter Meyer and the homeless guy and all the words that they have been saying. Like, can you see it? Can you see it? Do you hear it? Can you see it? Like a flaw in the programming that they that right? They're probably they outliers. Yeah, maybe that's the thing of the outlier that outliers can see it. This concept from season three that we were introduced to. Paul, do you remember what outliers were? They were simply people that, for very undefined reasons, didn't follow the path that Rehoboam would be able to predict for them. So I'd imagine it would be people either the super smartest or maybe people with emotional problems or various psychoses or learning problems, just just people that didn't kind of fit the general box that people are supposed to fit for those kind of models. Agents of chaos. Yeah, there you go. That's a shorter way. From Rehoboam's point of view, they were agents of chaos, unpredictable. Caroline, let's get into Maya a little bit, because I think that is significant. And I think that's going to become a significant key to understanding what we were, who we've been saying, like Emmett, her boss, Christina's boss, Maya, the date, the douchebaggy date. We had all been flagging them as control agents, people who were there inserted Truman Show style into Christina's life to keep an eye on her. And that may still be true. But this dream, I haven't even in my notes here, is this a dream she's relating or is this a memory she's relating that she interprets as a dream? Because it certainly sounds like from what we've seen Caleb go through and Navarro go through and uh, Cartel Hugo go through, the fly swarm descending upon you, coming into you, and then not remembering. And then they came for me, she says. That's like her last memory is, and then they came for me. She would be a symbiotic. She would be someone who this parasite grew inside of her all the way into adulthood now. And she would never be aware of it because it was the perfect matching. It was the perfect, you know, hosting host and and parasite. So she wouldn't even know she's being controlled. But it's the fruition of Haloris's ultimate control dream. This this child who doesn't who's grown into a young uh, a young adult who doesn't even realize they're under control. So she probably is spying on Christina. She is keeping tabs on her, but doesn't realize why she's doing it. She does she doesn't see the tower. She doesn't see why she's doing it. She just is doing it. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with that. I was thinking about how there's all those like TikTok videos of different like um, frequencies, and the, you know that'll tell you to like get different people of different ages, and different frequencies can be heard by different people of different ages. And it was making me think of how like little kids can hear like you, over time you lose your frequencies. So as you get older, you have like a smaller band, and that might make sense to me why. It would be more difficult for Haloris to get you to do all the things because you can only actually hear, as an older person, a smaller range of sounds. Whereas if you're a child, you can hear the spectrum of sounds, um, especially the higher pitched ones. That seems to be the fly's favorite ones. Um, So it makes sense to me that this is how this would end up propagating 
Christina's world here is having these people and and the outliers. You know, you guys know as my podcast partner people that I have ranges that I can't stand hearing that don't bother you guys. And and we can be editing or doing something else and, and I can't listen to certain frequencies. So for me, I think I would probably be an outlier then in some way because I would hear sounds that y'all wouldn't be hearing. I'd be the homeless man being like, you can't hear that? <laughs> like, that's making me insane. Paul, Paul, have you seen Caroline playing with blocks and then sweeping them off of tables recently? <laughs> I have not. Put her on block watch. Keep an eye on her block activity. I'll keep a couple blocks around just, just to see what happens. I think it's a cool idea of like sound generally, though, like, you know, you not being able to see sound waves, but them absolutely affecting you. There's something very cool about how you were just saying if you picked a superpower, you'd pick invisibility kind of thing. Then there's something about get like a dog's invisible collar kind of thing. That's like very fascinating. Well, that's where that's why this is so terrifying, because this is playing with technology that is out there. Right. We oh, put yeah. these inf- we put these infrared we play with collars. Them on TikTok. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Right. I mean, it was a whole in the first season of Evil on CBS. Hold up. Can I just say how many times do we hear that TikTok is actually being used by China in order to like collect data on us? How many times have we heard that to not have that app on your phone what if they are using that stupid game to see what age people can hear what fucking pitches that doesn't look like anything to me mm-hmm. I, I don't know i don't know but it is depressing though, because evil had this whole uh this whole subplot in its first season uh, based on pitches it was a mind control thing using youtube influencers beauty influencers on youtube uh, young people were turned becoming like killers because they were hearing this pitch that older people couldn't hear and it was based on the whole frequency thing we didn't even talk about in the lab how smart Maeve was to turn off her auditory signals and then overload the machine basically driving making the frequency so unbearable that it blows out the glass releasing the flies which is not great but it stuns <laughs> it stuns Holoris and host in black like it paralyzes them with pain like true pain because she jacks it up so much and then the editing where it would cut to Maeve and it would be silent like the entire soundtrack would come out would cut out I thought that was a really smart piece of thinking on Maeve's part but I thought narratively and editing wise I thought that was actually really well done what's the movie that they do that in a quiet place where they they use the radio station frequency and the high pitched noise and the only person the you know the the hero of the day is the deaf daughter because she can use her hearing aids to create the highest pitch noise that feedback sound mm. and she can affect the other species of you know essentially so they can save the day through sound waves yeah no i think it's really interesting i just the, just the whole maya story seemingly being proof of the concept Holoris is telling Caleb about. Like, Caleb is here, like, explaining, we found kids were really great, actually, to take over the world with. And then you have Maya relating this terrifying fly story over here. It's like, oh, here's exhibit A, Maya. And think about Maya, Emmett, her boss, douchebag date guy. They're all in the same age range. They're all young people. They're all, you know, in that 20-year-old range. Whereas Peter Meyer was an older guy. Like, he was not older, not older, like, older. They're all, like, 30, which would be right on. 23 years, right. So, Mm -hmm. young kids, let's say... 30. Let's say, like, Frankie was seven, right? Mm -hmm. Seven or eight, and now she would be 23 years old. She'd be, like, 30, right? So, Mm -hmm. whereas, like, Peter Meyer and the homeless guy were older. They're in their 40s or 50s or even older than that. Homeless guy does look older, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so just interesting, like, that would be someone who maybe they had tried to infect and it didn't stick and or somehow made him some kind of aberration or some kind of outlier. 
So I like it. I think it works. Caroline, I gotta I gotta go to you on this. What is the deal with Maya and the lipstick? She's putting lipstick on Christina in the restaurant. I maintain what I said in a previous podcast that that's not lipstick. There's something in it. Um, it's some sort of I think drug that she's using. She doesn't put it on her like you would put lipstick on. She is going. In these up and down, (laughs) well, she's doing these up and down motions, which you do lipstick horizontally. So it's like she scribbles almost. Well, she's going like this, like into the ridges of your lips. Um, That's just not how anyone puts on lipstick. So, and she doesn't do anything that would create full coverage on someone's lips. They would make like dots. Long story short, I think I've always thought it was some sort of drug, some sort of compliance drug, some sort of, or just like chill out drug, some sort of, maybe it's equivalent of weed or something. Like, I don't really know, but some sort of just like let's have a good evening and everybody chill kind of something. And she's going along with it this time. Did this quote sound familiar to anyone else? Don't mind me. Just trying to look chivalrous. Ah, yes. The can. All all that season one, episode one, from the very beginning, this has been his line. What, what do we think here? Does Teddy know he's Teddy? How, how woke uh, is Teddy? In this scene, he seems to know a lot. It's like he wants her to discover what she's missing, but he can't just come out and say it. He has to use his foreknowledge of their relationship to try to guide her there. But Teddy isn't really the thinker of the pair. I wonder if he's getting some help, some Cyrano type type help from from a third party. I think that's plausible, but I'm worried that it's actually going to be used as a tremendous torture trick on Christina in that this is all she wants. This is all she wants is this happy ending with Teddy, and Haloris certainly knows that. So to bring in her knight in shining armor and have him sweep her off her feet just to have it crash and burn, I think would be a pretty ultimate By her mean girl, horrible yeah. thing to do. By her handpicked control. Yep person Mm -hmm. who just chaperones at the bar because she desperately needs to get out that night right exactly like i need you to come out with me i just need the break from the fly dream you're going on a date that i'm going to watch you have from afar (laughs) (laughs) we don't worry your lipstick will would broadcast to me everything that's happening at the table there's definitely something right. creepy about I that love, it would be awesome Maya that. comes in like a waitress uniform like comes and like puts bread on the table like, she's like hello she has like a mustache like, hello. she's sort of a Don Knotts <laughs> totally I'm because we just rewatched season one and we had that episode where Ford manipulates Teddy with the music um, and Teddy just stands up and is like, let's go. We need to go to like the man in black. I'm very nervous that because we're having these nice bookend moments, I'm very scared that Haloris, a.k.a. Ford-esque, is manipulating Teddy to create a situation here that I think is going to be a tremendous heartbreak. If love is the salve that can break anything in terms of like, you know, mind control, I'm afraid it could also maybe... I know you've said, Paul, you think that there's some connection to Dolores needing to wake up in season one in order to get things going. And maybe that, you know, inadvertently it will happen where she wakes up and something else is created. Or maybe purposely we, you know, Dolores wants her to wake up and create some other opening to some other something that we're not sure about. But she's always been some sort of key whenever she kind of wakes up. Yeah. Other things can happen. So. I think Teddy is going to be used and whether it's going to be her heartbreak that's used, I cannot see it being 
uh, this romantic love wonderful thing like it would be allowed in this i think we only get it for i think we get it for an episode or so and then like yeah. with a really great buildup of her just being completely in love hopeful enough that the fall is hard enough we we predicted when we were talking about in either in the preview episode or it was episode one i can't remember which where we talked about it, but we said that with the date with teddy that maybe he wouldn't be a sanctioned date Right. We had this idea that the douchebag investment banker bro date was a sanctioned date. It was something set up by Maya. It was in that control, um, you know, keeping an eye on her, keeping her on her loops kind of thing. We had talked about maybe Teddy. Teddy would be a rogue. He would come in and not be sanctioned. But it sounds very much like Maya set this up. So I think that throws it out of the window. You ha- I think you're right, Caroline. I think you have to be suspect if this is coming from the man. As Not only that, but if you think about it, now that we know the Peter Myers, um, you know, being on the outside, likely outlier situation, then the fact that Teddy was sent in basically to beat him up and knock him away, like save Dolores, then that very much feels oh, like, point. you know, point. he's being used as like a henchman, you know? Like literally like an enforcer, right? Mm-hmm. Let, let's listen to a couple of uh, parts from the date here. Oh, we just met. You don't know anything about me. I feel like I've known you lifetimes. And now I know that you're extremely cheesy. Oh. <laughs> Well, perhaps you could write me a better line. What's that supposed to mean? You're a writer, right? How do you know that? From your roommate. She says you're very dedicated to your work. I understand. I used to live like that. Every day, you wake up, you do your job, you go home. Rinse and repeat. Like a, like a train circling the smallest track. What kind of work were you in? If I told you, you wouldn't believe me. <laughs> Try me. Um, I was something of a bounty hunter with a heart of gold. You're right. I don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's the thing about this world. Some of the most unbelievable things turn out to be true. And the things that feel the most real are nothing but stories that we tell ourselves. Have we met before? There's just something about you that's very familiar. You know, uh, Paul, you're right. It, it definitely comes off that he is a little Beetlejuice, a little Rumpelstiltskin, right? He can't. He's trying to lead her there. I was a bounty hunter with a with a heart of gold. Like he's playing Password or like twenty five thousand dollar pyramid or something, trying to get her to fill in the gaps. And he takes her quite away. She gets to the point of saying, you know, you feel very familiar to me, but she doesn't fully commit to it. It's interesting, and, and I and made me suspect, Caroline, is when he says to her, well, maybe you can write me a new line. See, that. so most of this date was Teddy being old Teddy and using old callbacks that would have resonated. That was him referencing this new modern life that she has. And she has kind of the same reaction she has to Maya about the obituary or to Emmett about him knowing where she's accessing the files. She says, how do you know that? Why, why would you say that? 
And he's like, well, your roommate, just like Maya mm -hmm. had proof of like, oh, I had the answer here and has the phone. Right. Or Here's Maya Peter's information. Right. Exactly. Like they all had a they all had an answer, like a, a reason for knowing that information. But her instinct was to be curious that they knew something so personal about her. And they're able to play it off of like, no, well, obviously your roommate set this date up and told me a little bit about you. But it is unnerving when someone knows something about you that you don't know. Like when a stranger knows things about you that is very unnerving and she's experiencing that here but he is so fucking charming and charismatic she kind of just glosses right over it at the same time he doesn't get her all the way to like did i ever like drop condensed milk in front of you you know well and the other thing is you know we also have had many stories in which there's parallel things going on in multiple storylines where you're supposed to be picking up like the love of a child both in this storyline say the man in black and Emily or the love of a child over here with like Maeve and her daughter or Caleb and and his daughter so in this case I'm also kind of wondering we have the other storyline going on I'm putting out there that is a fidelity test with Caleb I think there's still a lot of potential that these different characters that are coming in are all trying to probe how far is Dolores in this breaking of her loop. So uh, Teddy asking questions or saying things to and like like you said, filling in the blank, like let's play Mad Libs. You are a, you know, fill in profession here, <laughs> like trying to see like what is she going to say, you know, because he can't say I know you're a writer, but he can lead her to that and see does she say I'm a writer or does she say something else like because I we're checking where are you what are you thinking I'm a paramilitary about? revolutionary and I'm going to take down this system she could be like my name's Wyatt you know and you're like wait yeah. what like so yeah. like I'm wondering again like I love Teddy and I want him to be more than he is but in reality he has always been a stooge like he's always been put in place and been manipulated by other people, even Dolores, manipulating and and ends up getting really the short end of the stick in every single situation. Well, he's an NPC of a main character, right? He's cannon fodder. You put Teddy in there, you need an easy pull at the heartstrings, but you don't really care. He doesn't really affect the plot if he gets riddled with bullets. Well, he's the manipulator of her, though, in, in so many ways. And, and he was the manipulator of the man in black when, like I'm saying, if you go back and watch season one, there, there's some time. You remember this, Paul, when they're at the saloon and Teddy's like, let's go. And he like ends up like leading him. Yeah. Like there's like a whole game with Teddy where I want him to be the leading man but he's not and he never has been but i just want him to be you know i want him to be as important as caleb or as important as dolores but he's always been like you said at nbc i wasn't hitting on you no shame in that case how about a toast to you and your path, wherever it leads. This is a classic line that on its face sounds wonderful and benign, but if you are suspect of the person saying it, you can easily take it as something extremely sinister. You know, the line is, a toast to your path, wherever it may take you. I mean, that can be very like oh thank you like thank you for supporting me it could also be like wherever it may take you <laughs> well they've always talked about paths and that his always leads him back to her mm -hmm. right and it was it was kind of like him all right i've pushed enough for tonight to try and get her to 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 give me some answers 
So let's just leave it here with this, you know, kind of ambiguous wherever your path may take you. We'll 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 be seeing me again. (laughs) I think it also like creates a question in the other person's brain. Like when you make a toast like that and they say, like, whenever is the next time we meet again, you know, you naturally think. When's the next time I'm going to see them? You know, like that, that's a, your natural thing. So when the person says a toast to your bath, wherever it may take you, your natural inclination as a humanist to go or as a host, whatever the fuck, your natural thought process is where is my path taking me? Where am I going? What's going to happen next? You know? Oh, look at my calendar. It already has another date scheduled with you for next week. I don't even remember scheduling that. <laughs> There's like Maya a fly on it. it. <laughs> yeah. Maya, Maya put lipstick on me and took my phone and added it to my calendar. <laughs> Is it is it at all curious that if we know that Maya is a fly person, then we can assume that the city is filled with fly people. Yes. yes. But we also know that Christina is a host. We're pretty sure Teddy's a host because, you know, he used to be a host, too, and they probably still have the specs on how to print out a new Teddy whenever they need one. So sure. Well, and he's using the I was a bounty hunter with a, a heart of gold. He's using Teddy lines. Right. Uh, with like some souped up. Are right. you trying to figure out like what is this world made of yeah. in terms of like what's the population? And then, but then you also have the subway, the staircase bros. This place is fucking wild. It's the best. I've never been here before. Good it's point. better than I could have been. Like those don't sound like they're fly controlled. Those sound like fucking D bags from Westworld, right? I mean, they sound like they could be uh, Logan's brothers. Or it could just be a very leading line. Where uh, noobs visiting New York City in the real world would say something similar if you overheard them. But then again, this is a button-down society now that is run by Haloris. I mean, those definitely stand out. I mean, those guys going down into the subway definitely stand out as like, was that a misdirect or was that, Mm -hmm. you know, or were we supposed to pick that up as a cue of like, again, this, I mean, we know it's not the quote real world. We know that it's not the real world. So the idea that this population could be mixed in with paying guests and experimental guests like Caleb or the homeless man or whomever and people who have completely turned and hosts isn't actually crazy. It's not too wild to think that it's the next evolution of what it's Delos number seven. It's number seven. Or that uh, mm. or that maybe people could buy their way out of becoming fly people, even though Haloris has full intention of taking them over in the future or letting them die out or something like that. But maybe the illusion of buying your way out for now. Well, one thing we have to keep a track of, and, and we would be remiss as people who podcast about the show to drop the thread, is there's the very distinct possibility and the sh- that the show has shown us that Christina, within her, I work at Olympiad as a writer of NPC programs, has had her own time jump within the self-contained world. Because remember, she has that, there's that whole disconnect between it's only been three days since i talked to peter myers and his obituary and the peter myers wing at the psych hospital of a psych hospital that has been abandoned and shuttered for a while so how could his fortune have been donated a wing built to him a plaque dedicated the entire life of the psych hospital lived died shuddered and now she's there discovering it so we talked about this two episodes ago it's very possible that that i keep saying dolores that christina could have lived her own 23 year span of time or 30 year span of time just slept through it well or or was just kind of being reset all of those wake-up shots 
all those wake up shots of those overhead shots of her waking up in bed every morning is maybe her being reset on her loops. And she doesn't realize that 23 years or so have gone. So when those when those staircase guys are heading down the stairs, maybe that's before fly people dominated. Maybe it mm. was like temperance. Maybe it was the city park and flies were just being introduced. Now, fast forward and she's drawing pictures of the tower over painting pictures of the tower over her cityscapes. And it's a monochromatic black and white world exclusively because Kate and Caleb's running around there. Maybe that's where this world has progressed. There aren't cool frat bros discovering the park for the first time. Now it's just all fly people and hosts. I think it's very fair to expect that there's been an evolution of Christina over time. And when exactly that we have witnessed, like when Teddy actually plays in doesn't necessarily mean it's past the point of when the bros were there or like Teddy and what goes on with Dolores, that could have happened right at the beginning when Dolores was deposited. Like maybe the scene we saw when she overslept was the beginning of her being deposited there. And she wasn't on her loop yet. And they made some sort of modifications. And like Maya is not in her Maya place yet, you know, where she's like still talking about being taken over by flies like there could be I'm, I'm willing to open my brain up to the idea that like we could be seeing it could have disintegrated into you know what we're seeing now with the black tower or it could have even gone some even weirder way where like Haloris has managed to gain more control over it over time and we're seeing it backwards basically um, to where she has forgotten about the tower and can't hear the tower or see the tower anymore I'm open to the weirdness of it all. <laughs> I think, I think, however it's going to play out, I don't think, I think it's the right call to say a passage of time, a significant passage of time has occurred in some form of fashion uh, that we've seen Christina in her arc this year. Yes. In this season, she has not, it has not been a linear story for Christina, either jumping forward and backwards or back, uh, starting in the future and going backwards, because too much has changed day to day. The homeless man, uh, seemingly the one of the next days after she doesn't really even pay attention to him, but then Peter Meyer kills herself. Then he hears, then she hears the homeless man about the song with no sound and the year and then the birds. And then all those birds are dead. It's not one of those things where to Monday, the birds are not dead. And then Tuesday, all of the fucking birds are dead. Like some evolution of time has happened there. So hear me out on, on, on this, because we have the season one where we have Dolores all buttoned up, all not woke, all like completely, um, you know, in her loop. And then she disintegrates. Why I'm like throwing out the idea of like, what if we're actually seeing it the other way? What if the people who are being thrown in, just like Caleb, are coming in in chaos and it's a matter of using the acoustic stuff to get them in line? So we actually so then it's like first season goes from everything's great and disintegrating down into like this wokeness, right? What if this way Dolores comes in and she is like out of out of whack and Maya's out of whack and Peter Myers maybe fits in there at that point and the homeless man and the birds are dying also. But like that. So then the world isn't working properly. But like by the time the timeline could go that then Haloris actually gains control over time. So then the two bookends are a controlled Dolores on both sides, the start and the end. Instead of two parallel storylines of a of a controlled Dolores disintegrating into not so uh, yeah, much. Yeah, I, I think I think that is as possible as any other. Can't rule it out. Timey wimey. Yeah, I, I don't. We don't have enough information. The show has done a good job of keeping. I think it's 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 only hat tipped 
insofar as to say that there are different timelines happening here mm-hmm. without giving real any indication of how it's working, how the how the timey wimeyness is working. Uh, I, I think one of the big questions for me anyway, coming out of this is seeing how Caleb ends and that monochromatic world. And, and, you know, they have that whole thing. Do you understand now, Caleb, when she f- freezes all motor functions, everyone, and he says, you won. And she says, welcome to my world. And then she just like restarts them kind of like a fl- with a flick of her hand. I mean, that's an awesome scene. It looked really cool, but that's also a very terrifying, brave new world you know, planet it of, you know, like a, like a swiftly tilting planet kind of thing where everyone is mind controlled. For me, the big question is, is Christina like just down the block? Is she at, or is she in the Olympiad, like in her cubicle at Olympiad while Caleb is running through the halls of Olympiad out onto the street? Like, are, are they there at the same time? That's a big question for me that I'm really looking forward to for the back end of the season. Me too. I just like know where people are, man. I think it's meant to evoke the imagery of like, you know, Ford having that mental control that he had over hosts, but also like when they were training the hosts, how they would have that same Dance sort of street. everybody stop. Moment. Well, we've got that trailer clip also, right? Of I think it's intemperance, um, but it's everyone doing the waltz dance, but doing it out in the street. We still haven't seen that scene yet uh, from the trailer where I think it's, it's all like the old timey jazz roaring twenties people doing one of those Ford-esque let's all learn how to dance together sequences with the hosts. Got to go back to temperance. They, they rebuilt that whole set and they didn't do it just for one episode, right? Or parts of two episodes. It's definitely going to be some reset and who knows? I mean, it's very much in the show to reset it and make us relive a different version, like a similar yet different version of it. Yeah. I don't think we're done with the parks. I think we're definitely going to go back there in the back, back half of the episodes. I know we're getting to the end here. We, I mean, we really just have to talk about the Bernard of it all and, and, and Frankie. I'm sorry, C. There is a body. But it's not your father's. Caleb isn't here. Am I stupid that I didn't see this coming until this episode? They st- And they really started to pile it on as they start, especially as they start cutting back and forth uh, between Bernard and Frankie or at that no, point. It was, between, it was between Caleb that between Caleb and her. Caleb when and he goes, was he was like, what about my with... daughter? And then it was like the next scene was her sitting there and it was like, oh God, it's Frankie. Right. My, my notes are like all portioned off. Like it's like two lines mm-hmm. here then they flip the other scene, but which is great editing, but it made you start to realize like, oh, oh, okay. I see yeah. where they're heading here. And then when it's like, you know, my father died here allegedly yeah. and he's dead and his body's here. I was like, oh, how did I not fucking see this? Am I stupid for not seeing it? Did you guys put it together that Aurora Perno is going to end up being Frankie all grown up. I felt like by calling her C, Mm, I really felt like that was kind of shitty (laughs) because I was like, well, if you're going to tell us that this character has a completely different name and you're not even going to try to tie it some way into her previous name, I don't know what part of her were we really supposed to recognize? Maybe the clue was that when she was, um, playing with her her little pellet gun it was mm-hmm. like a 1911 style semi-automatic little little gun and those are the guns that she pulled on stubs and 
Well, then that we missed. Then that's a very good, that is good. That's solid. That's a real clue. I think we were also going more in the direction. I think, I think we collectively were going more in the direction of what if Frankie was a host or Awadi was a host. You know, I, I think, I think we using the information available to us made guesses in a different direction we guessed correctly that bernard and Stubbs were in a vastly different timeline like way future though so i i'm gonna say we even thought further than 23 years uh, because i mean of the it way really that goes bernard... to fucking pot in 23 years if... <laughs> well but that's the i mean but that goes back to the whole conversation of one generation it only took one generation for that to go from a regular you know motel situation to like that whole town is just like a dust covered nothing i thought it looked right. worse than eight years time that that's for sure the, the baseline was eight years, uh, seven years since the end of the riots, because that was right. where Caleb and right. may have started from. I feel I feel kind of cheated on the name thing. And I understand that they all Let's rest of them the seem to have like a alphabetical name, like the guy's name was J and That's her name was, was C. It could and... just be like a designation. Like, I, yeah, like totally. A sign or totally. They seem a little bit paramilitary if they're the last of the breed. I mean, there's mention of outliers. If if they're if they're the, the cause. Right. We We've only heard like references to adjectives really describing this group your organization bernard says that how long have you been with the cause she says last week so if their cause is they free outliers or they extract them from some place because that's what that's why daniel Wu jay doesn't want to take a chance or even waste time with bernard and the myth of a weapon because they have to go extract an outlier asap it makes sense that they would just go to more of a military style, just naming like you're just a number, right? I mean, in uh, your in in the military, like your your service number, right? If you get captured, you give your service number to your enemy, and you know your name, your rank, and your service number. You don't give any other details. So maybe in in a world where there's not a whole lot of humans, you designate power controlled by just like first letter names. Yeah, I I don't know. I still want to know more about this group. I I want to know more about Jay because I like Daniel Liu. And I don't think you get Daniel Liu, again, in this logic of you don't cast him. He's pretty well known for a TV actor. Uh, he's he's known for his martial arts. You don't get him to just be like, a, I want to kill them and go do something else. He's got stubs with him now for collateral. So I think we're going to see more of that character and more of that development. But uh, yeah, not so much on that tonight. So outside the, the the gun thing, which, Paul, I think that that's great. And I wish that we had picked that up. You know, I don't know. Did you just realize that just now? I just did. And it's it's a slight connection. But, it, you know. No, I think it's perfect. Like she's I don't been know. training this whole time. Yeah, I don't know what else it would have but, been. But I mean, she's using an airsoft like pellet gun, though. So, I mean, a lot of those just look like 1911. They do. You know, basic, basic semi-automatic handguns, though. So, yeah, it's a clue that she's not using like a fucking dirty Harry revolver or something, you know, like a like a 357 Magnum. Do you guys think that there was, I mean, I and I'm sure it will be revealed as we go through. I mean, do you guys think there were more things or do you think it was kind of crummy that obviously they weren't going to call her Frankie. That's too like straight out. But like, should she have been called something that was similar, like using Caleb's last name or using some variation on her name or something so that they're. I only really like thriller mysteries when they do actually give you clues that you could figure it out. When it's just like, it was the neighbor who like you never had any connection with or whatever. Maybe maybe it was like, "Eh." maybe she wore something when she was a kid that she's wearing as an older. Yeah. And I was trying to think, I mean, she's not old enough. She wasn't old enough when we saw her as a, as a small kiddo to see like a, um, like a piercing or a tattoo or something that could have been there. Did she have like a, 
Or birthmark or right item. bear bear. <laughs> Maybe if we looked around in the car, we would have seen bear bear. bear. Was strapped in the passenger seat. That's <laughs> we why. should that's, have seen bear bear. All that's on. why Bernard stuffs had a right in the back because bear bear, ru- so bear, bear runs a shotgun and does it the radio. It's bear bear seat. You're in bear bear seat. I haven't cleaned him yet since Carver's blood. Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, there wasn't a ton of screen time bef- between her introduction and finding out her identity. There was only five scenes, maybe. Uh, one thing I was interested in, because we see young Frankie in this episode playing with the ham radio, I'm curious if her radio skills, which are so dependent on frequencies in the air, will end up coming to play with this machine that deals with infrared sound and frequencies in the air. I'm curious if that skill set that they have now established she had, at least as a child, doing ham radio with her father, right, because she's looking for him on the airwaves, and we see Caleb using a ham radio kind of system to to send coordinates to his team in this episode. I wonder if that skill set will come back to play later on in the resistance. I like that connection. That's that's fair. Yeah, that's a fair game. But I mean, all of those kind of came together right at the end. I mean, they were already talking about she's looking for her dead father's body, which at that point, even I was like, oh, she's pro- this, this is probably Caleb's kid. Most of the others don't really believe there's a weapon here, do they? I have my own reasons for digging. And they aren't about a weapon, are they? Are you looking for your father? My father's dead. That's what you told yourself since you were a child. But you can never really bring yourself to believe it, can you? They say it happened here. If it's true, there'll be a body. You know how on Stranger Things, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but Walmart is stocking Surfer Boy Pizza. I've called the phone number for Surfer Boy Pizza and listened to Argyle. Uh huh. So you can also call the phone number that's on the side of the van. I'm wondering too if um, those coordinates will like tell us anything just for fun. You know, if you put those coordinates in, if you get anything fun. Thank you for that, because I put those coordinates into a, a, a coordinate finder. And if I did You're it correctly, welcome. <laughs> if I did it correctly, the coordinates I get and it's zero three four point three three two by negative one eighteen point seven one six. I put it in. I got Iron Trough Canyon Road in Ventura County, California. Okay. Now, Ventura County, California sits north of L.A. by Simi Valley. So it's definitely right in the L.A area so much of the show takes place in the la area in adjacent area but i was really expecting this to be closer to the hoover dam area just based on that whole men in black man in black thing from the beginning of the season knowing that he was buying the scrubland out there i could buy that yeah and and who knows in a post-apocalyptic world maybe there's a lot more space so you know things may be a lot more deserty once you get out of main cities i had a question if Bernard and Stubbs are in the timeline where Haloris has come to power and enslaved humanity, then how are there still things like the roads and diner just out there for anyone to drive up to and go get breakfast? Unless everyone in that diner is actually a host or a fly controlled person. And that's who they cater to because the two guys that Bernard kills are hosts. Bernard and Stubbs are hosts. But it seems very human, like they've got pastrami melt and tuna melts and they've got blondie on the jukebox. These don't seem to be things that hosts would consider concern themselves with. And that fly controlled people would be doing fly controlled things. 
Yeah, like why don't they don't have recreational time? You think they'd be like building walls or doing something that's like work? Right, your average host is not going to be looking at the eggs Benedict menu at the Rhodes and Diner. I would, you know, I would so. be because and that's my thing. But it's a, it's a great question because what does Stubbs drive? He drives what would be about an eighty year old gas powered vehicle. Who's making the gas? Who's digging? The oil, who's refining it, who's who's doing all We're this? We're from Houston, y'all. Can you tell? Right. Who's marketing Who, the gas? Where's the viscosity? <laughs> right. You need oil services. Who's the landman on that job? All of C and J's group seem to be using gas-powered vehicles. They didn't look like electric doom buggies and, and mini tanks. They look like they were traditional gas pumps even if they were electric where are they getting the electricity from they're they're camped out in the contaminated lands where no one is supposed to be where there are cylon drones flying overhead <laughs> uh, i lost a bet i thought you'd say that they were terminator hunter killers uh, oh no because when they first see it come on the screen it has like the wings forward and the cockpit back <laughs> uh look of it it looks like the drones uh, that the cylons would use in battlestar galactica like the cannon fodder drones so what is that machine that she was trying to do and why did bernard just almost identify himself he had to understand what they were doing but he looked like possessed when he kind of walked forward and almost got them exposed oh it was about the beetle you think that he was just ensorcelled by the beetle that he was not ensorcelled he knew that that was one of those forks Visions. in the road. That's right. That was, was one, one of those paths. forks in the road. So he, that beetle, that particular beetle, had to live in order for the mission to be successful. And so when it flies away and he's like, it lived, like that whole little thing. That was so, I, I looked at Paul and I said, man, this is going to come down to beetles and flies, like at the end of the day. I, I just think that that's amazing, though, because we have all these really high brow concepts. We have Rehoboam. We have all this business. And at the end of the day, it's going to come down to did a beetle live or die? I mean, and Stubbs thought his BLT might fuck things up. I mean, I, it, was, it was a great little scene. And I liked how fast I liked that it showed that she still had that training that her father had instilled in her. She grabs the tarp and throws it over him. She doesn't, she, you know, she's just a soldier in that moment. She's just reacting and she's reacting with good instincts and keeping them all safe. Uh, it was cool. It was it was a great little scene. I, I like I I mean, I'm biased. I like Aurora Perno a lot. I, everything I've seen her in, I've been a fan of. So I'm inclined to like her but i like what they're doing with her character so far and i like the chemistry with her and bernard i always appreciate it when they show me something tactical that i think i could usually i could use if i was in that scenario so now that i've seen that you could use sand colored tarps to hide from drones and stuff like that like i'm like i'm like putting that in my survivors like hand kit and being like okay what exactly do i need to know how to do and i make sure i have like a sand colored tarp <laughs> with me that's uh, that's uh, i always love that because there's there's some people who get very scared when they see future things um you know we cover handmaid's tale people get very scared especially things that go on in, in the world today and so what I always look for when I watch those and the reason I don't get scared is I watch for like what things work to undo things I don't like happening so I could put that in the back of my head like I should always know how to do that kung fu move or whatever <laughs> because that was the thing that got them out of the handcuffs or whatever you know like I'm like I'm collecting my skill set for the future yeah, she, she's already broken her thumb so that it can I dislocate even, I can dislocate um, my shoulder now so I'm good I learned that from Mel Gibson mm-hmm yeah. That's bird on a wire. Mm, dislocated shoulder. I'm pretty sure Riggs does that in. too. Well, so Mel Gibson himself <laughs> must be able to do that, huh? Because it's, be. it's in bird on a wire too. I like that prof prophecy Bernard also is a little practical 
you know, he says, uh, we're digging here because it's trial by, error, trial by error. I've dug everywhere else. I thought mm-hmm. that was kind of funny. I, you know, Jeffrey Wright just kills it always with those lines. Her face, though, like Frankie's face when she realizes what this actually is. Because, you know, she doesn't know everything of what's happening. And then so when he says, I've dug everywhere else, like her face is like, what the hell? Well, it's the same look she gives him <laughs> when she says that you can't shoot us because he has your gun. And she's like, what? Yeah. And then Stubbs takes the gun in the car, you know. Let's talk about, we have Sandy Maeve. That's the big uncovering. This is the promised weapon. Maeve's got a big fucking hole in her chest uh, from where the man in black or the host in black shot her before she hugged, bear hugged him into an explosion. I'm kind of more surprised that she's so intact. You're talking about a hole from the gun. She was a part of the explosion. I thought she'd actually have a lot more... Hmm. body damage i mean her face was perfectly intact well the demo sign was over her so i wonder if it was one of those things just luck wise that when to it blew... self put the sign well, over my face i mean if indiana jones has ever told us anything it's that if you get into a fridge you can survive a nuclear blast I'm learning. so that's true you know this is a, this but is other the... shows have taught me you better not close that fridge in a way that it latches closed because you could suffocate i've seen that move too isn't a bigger question? Wouldn't the man in black or the host in black be still attached to her? They were in a death bear hug when that blew. Especially so if his she's body's got to be around. Yeah, yeah, his body's got to be near there, if not, if not right there. Could be right under her. Let me ask you: Why do you think the host in black was so obsessed with her? In particular, starting with last episode, he seemed singularly focused on taking her out. In this episode, almost like a Terminator, you know, even when they show up at the demo site, he says, we keep getting interrupted. She's another kind of outlier. And this is one that can actually uh, Dr. Doolittle the machines. And she's pretty smart. So she might figure out, even though the systems have been upgraded, it takes her longer to stop them. It hasn't necessarily stopped her completely yet. So with enough time and maybe, who knows, maybe whatever upgrades she manages to get out of the desert, um, maybe well, they've that, got 23 years of technology. So There's that. And she's got her guts all cut open. So she's going to need some help. I assume there's going to be a discussion about like, we hate hosts. And he's going to be like, well, bad news. You're going to need this one to help you out. And then they're going to rebuild her and then yada, yada, yada. It's T-800 versus T-1000, right? It's making Terminator to be on your side to take the more advanced Tosan. There you go. Exactly. Terminator 2, guys. Go watch Terminator 2. (laughs) So I knew there'd be a Terminator reference. I just got the wrong Oh, yeah, you're good. Well, Frankie is John Connor in this scenario, and Caleb would be Sarah Connor, I guess. Because it all makes sense. It all makes sense. I love the concept that Maeve, at the end of the day, is the weapon that could save them all. Because she's always been low-key the weapon that has saved them all i mean you know if you look back through her story whether it's been protecting clementine or whether it's been you know um i don't know just 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 her role as the madam in general of kind of like like bobbing and weaving and maneuvering and and making sure that certain things happen at certain times like she's always played the game better than and than everyone else and she just she just evolved further and further into this amazing character. Well, she's um, always tried, you know, like when, yeah. when they came to get her daughter, she tried with the gun. Yeah. You know, when she faced the uh, Japanese Dolores, she tried with the sword. 
you know, and she I, didn't she wind up getting killed in that scene? Yeah, but even so, but by that, so evolutionary wise, like, but then she, she ends up killing the dude, you know, outside mm-hmm. Caleb's house with the sword. Like, there's, there, like, she, yeah. you're right. She always is willing to, to put herself out there and, and to, and to figure it out. Like, that, that she can be like, we got to be taken by the, you know, by the Undertaker people. They got to come and get us, you know, so we can get down below. Like, she's always willing to, to play the game and go next level. And I, I just think that it's super cool, you know, that she has, first of all, she's not a 20 year old woman. You know, she is she is a woman who is more mature and she is playing this kick ass character. You know, she is a woman. She is a person of color. Like there's a lot of really great like she's breaking the the stereotypes of who this person would be, because a lot of times it is a guy, you know, who ends up being the one we have to find, you know, always. Uh, there's a video game that came out in the last year. It's called Death Loop. And the entire point of it essentially is you keep. You keep playing the game, you keep dying, and you have to learn from your experiences because you keep repeating the same thing over and over again. And and through dying, you learn how to do the patterns better so that eventually you won't die because you have to you have to accomplish a, a certain number of objectives in the same life. So ultimately, you have to finish the game on one life. But the whole point is by dying over and over again and living your death loop, you learn the pattern of the game. So you figure out a way to do it. It's kind of like how Maeve has played the game for so long. And Super Mario. And Super Mario, brother. Yes, your your host is not in this kingdom. So uh, I want to ask, what do you think the park expansion project was going to be? Uh, so if you saw it when Caleb and Maeve show up at the extraction site before the host in black and before shows up or reveals himself. And before Holoris gets free, there's a sign that says park expansion project, uh, explosive area, be careful kind of thing. Maybe it's just uh volume. You know, she, she, I imagine that if, if I was Holoris, I'd lower the price, right. And make it almost like six flags to come to this thing so that she could just start pumping people through the fly machine and start spreading the word. Yeah, that makes sense. You tell two friends and you tell two, except for it's you infect two friends. Like buy one, get one free. And you infect two friends and they infect two friends and so on and so on and so on. It's a BOGO. I wonder wonder why, though, the park park expansion project in, say, 2068 in that timeline becomes the quote-unquote contaminated lands in 2091, 23 years later. What would make it contaminated lands? Why would they have abandoned it? They clearly didn't continue to build there. There's nothing there. I was wondering if the city park area that Christine is in, that Caleb is in, that Olympia Olympiad is in, if that was originally supposed to go there and then following the explosion, they moved it to a new location. Because I thought I thought it was contaminated labs with a B, uh, which is why I was thinking that the weapon was going to be that military computer we saw in in Bernard's visions. I th- I thought I thought it was labs, but when I rewatched the episode with closed captioning on, it said contaminated lands, and the sign also says says contaminated lands that they drive when they enter that area. I think it's a ruse. Do you think it's because they know Babe is buried there and they don't want anyone fucking around looking for her? Maybe that. Maybe just other you know aspects of the of the transition or equipment that was left there because uh, you know it's a, it's a. It's a, it's an established Delos pattern that they don't really clean up after themselves. They just use what they 
what they use and then they just if they need something new they just build over there and instead of going to much pains to actually get rid of the stuff that they don't use anymore i'm thinking it's it's a little like the ruse in close encounters where they make uh, an excuse for people not to want to go to a place you know where the aliens are going to land in that case but in this case it's uh they don't want the remaining human race to stumble upon the the leavings of the of the park. I, I think that's very possible. What if Haloris via the host in black doesn't buy the Hoover Dam storage space and the scrubland around that area until after the explosion has happened with Caleb and Maeve in north of LA area based on the coordinates that he uses for extraction. What if they move the operation further south into that Nevada area? Yeah, I was thinking that that our assumption of where that event lies in the timeline and basing it off of something that was stolen X years ago or whatever he says, we might be assuming the wrong thing about what was stolen. We never saw how anything ever wound up in those servers. That could be right. That could be actually a scene from the end of this season. You know, maybe the sublime gets moved to the storage area or whatever they're looking for gets moved to this area afterwards. I think I think we thought it tracked because he has that scene and then we find out that they have built this park over X number of years, the temperance park that they're opening. So it all kind of made sense. But if they were in L.A., let's think this through. If they were in L.A., when they go to the opera house and we know it was cause, cause it was like the Los Angeles, like symphony space or, or like art space that they go for the opera. Then they hop on the train. It makes sense that the train would just take them North out of LA to the coordinates that Caleb enters into the computer. Cause it's just North of LA versus a very long train ride, which I was having trouble reconciling that would take them down out of LA across, across like the desert there into like the Hoover Dam area. That seems like too far of a train ride. So the park being north of LA makes a lot more sense uh, based on where you where you depart for the train and, and how long a train ride would be. Well, the relative proximity of Hoover Dam to those parts of California, it, it is a long ways, but it's not- It's a, not that far. It doesn't seem so long that it that they couldn't be related. People drive to Vegas from LA and, and we drove from Vegas to the Hoover Dam. Yeah. So it's not, it's not as far. It's actually only four and a half hours to mm-hmm. go from Los Angeles to the Hoover Dam. I just map quested it. So by car, it's just four and a half hours. It's only 300 miles. Mm-hmm. That is possible. So I guess it could be either. I, I More information. And ultimately, it probably doesn't make a difference other than just lore hounds like myself that just want to know all of the background details. <laughs> well, I'm curious but. now as we're moving forward, and I think we're getting into the sort of predictions and, and what's next portion here. I'm curious about in, in thinking about when the Hoover Dam stuff happens. When we have that part where we have the the we assume it's the host in black riding up on that horse in the in the teaser stuff with the big rip in the sky, mm-hmm. um, like where that's going to come into play. It looks like he's going to get into the sublime somehow, or he's in the original park with it, where he's he's somewhere where there's an entrance to the valley beyond. Right? I, that I wasn't looks saying like the... where he was. I was saying when is he? Like oh, when oh, is oh. there a rip in the in the 
in the worlds here? When is this taking place? Is this curious that that was one of those ones that I'm that I'm trying to place? It's like it's like I have this one puzzle piece in my hand and I'm like eagle eye analysis of the trailer I saw the blanket that the man in black is using or the host in black is using in that scene that you're talking about, Caroline, Mm -hmm. is a different blanket than he would ever normally that the original William ever used when he was in the park. I think it's like a white blanket, like a saddle blanket, whereas he always used to use a black saddle blanket. Well, we always know the white black thing matters. So that tells it that tips us off to something. It matters even more because a guy like William, like the host in black, being this creature of habit who always played the game the same way. So for him to change his saddle blanket is a significant thing. If you're looking for information on generation loss and you're looking for something a little lighthearted or more lighthearted than Westworld, go watch the Michael Keaton classic comedy, Multiplicity. I think it gives you a very good idea of the idea of generation lost. A bad copy of a bad copy of a bad copy. Soon you get a guy who just dribbles milk out of his mouth. Yeah, I've actually heard or read books uh, where that idea was uh, applied to biological cloning. That, I mean, that's what multiplicity is, basically, because he, he, he wants to be able to do all the things he wants to do, but also his wife wants him to do the errands and all those kinds of things. So he starts making copies of himself, and each one turns out a little bit worse than the one before to help out with the house. Last thing I had, I had a thought. What does Olympiad mean, right? You guys have done analysis, and I, Caroline, you even talked about Delos being of the you know, of the thing, of the place. Olympiad is a period of time that's most often associated with the Olympics, um, but it's a period of time of four years. I have no idea what that means, but uh, when he was running out of the office, when Caleb's running out of the office at the end of the episode and I saw Olympiad, my eyes just kind of stared at it. I was like, I've never actually looked up what that word actually means. I looked it up. And so like when you see in the Summer Olympics, the Summer Olympics of the 34th Olympiad, the Olympiad count always continues whether or not there's actually Olympics being held. So like in the two years of the Summer Olympics, when uh, during World War II, when the Olympics weren't held, the last Olympics didn't become the next one. They actually skipped those two set those two periods of Olympiads when they picked up the Olympics. It is a four year period that always runs. Huh. My brain is like, this is episode four. The other thing when you think about that, it's like the games and it's like the games are constantly running, you know, like there's like always the game has been part of this and there's got to be winners and there's got to be losers and all those things are floating through my brain as but you're saying that. There's no, there's no tie to Olympus, you know, where the gods live, that sort of thing. That Oh, I have to. Yeah. It's a, it's a Greek word that comes out of the original Olympics. Um, and, and the history of the word. But the, the word Olympic seems to refer specifically to competition. But the Olympiad is more of like this descriptor period of time. From, from what I read, I read I a think it also it. speaks to, you know, hail or hello or is continuously saying stop asking where and keep asking when, you know, right. we're talking about not not of or from which would imply the um the like current state of being but more of the if that's the delos mindset then think more of the when are these things happening the olympiad mindset of how much time has gone by do you know how mm-hmm. do you know how long it's been that that is a popular Haloris, you know whereas ford would always and bernard would always ask do you know where you are Haloris is seemingly always asking do you know when you are 
thank you guys for listening to the Valley Beyond, a Westworld podcast. If you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave us a five-star rating while you're there. It'd be most appreciated because it helps people find the show. It helps promotion of the show. It's what a good copy of you would do. The highest fidelity copy possible. Highest fidelity copies leave five stars, motherfuckers. This is Caroline. This is Paul. And this is Mike. Thanks Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. That's my line. I know. I realized it. It's a bad host. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.